1: Learn all about investing in real estate in Phoenix, Arizona, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Phoenix. Plus, syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Phoenix. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors.
0: Well... Good evening, welcome. I am not Brian Williams, although tonight I wish I was Brian Williams. I wish that I could like hide behind Brian Williams and say, yeah, that's James's story there and not have to share anything personal. Uh, tonight is 10 things I wish I knew before starting to invest in real estate. I am joined tonight by actually Brian Williams who is busy eating, so I won't uh, call him out, but uh, thank you for joining us tonight, Brian. I'm not eating. Maybe, uh, maybe you'd like to teach tonight instead of me sharing some uh, somewhat personal things.
1: Yeah, I'll share all your personal things instead.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm afraid of.
1: I don't know. This is a very, that's why I didn't get an invite, huh? You're like, Brian's going to tell all the things about me that I don't want known. It is
0: possible that was subconscious. It was not deliberate. It was not a conscious decision for me not to invite you. Um, It's possible it was done before I started sending you invites again. I don't know.
1: Some week when I'm, when I, when I'm teaching at some point, you're going to like forget to send me an invite and I'm just not going to show up. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: I mean, for most classes, I probably could wing it or change it to ask me anything or something like that but that depends on the class although i mean when you prep for a class it is way better than me winging it without having doing any prep ahead of time because it's not like i prep for a class that you're going to teach so right Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Tonight's like, you know, some people say that public speaking is like the biggest fear in the world and all this other stuff. For the most part, I don't get really nervous when I have to go and teach a class or do anything like that. But tonight, for some reason, I really am like, just, I don't know, worked up like my stomach's in knots. I told Tammy the other day, I was like, relax. Yeah, probably true. Probably true. All right. Upcoming classes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Nick says, James has a beard and not Brian. That's really bizarre. Oh, you have a slight beard?
1: Yeah, th- that's like four weeks for him. This is like two days.
0: <laughs> that is true. It's probably even more than four weeks for me. Uh, and and the spots that look like they're not coming in, that's just gray. <laughs> if you can yeah. tell, <laughs> it's not, it's not that I'm light down here. It's like, that's probably the darkest part of my beard. It's just all gray. So yeah. oh last time God.
1: when I had my like slightly longer beard and you were like, what's wrong with your, like, you look like you have fangs. So I got self-conscious and shaved my beard off. So it's just like, chop. It gray.
0: it's like chops, right? Like, I don't know. Like it's, it comes down in the sides here. I don't know. We could talk about this later. <sighs> okay. Let's just breathe. Here we go. Upcoming classes next week, much better class than tonight. I can assure you, I don't know what I'm teaching yet, but it's eight money saving, risk reducing real estate investor insurance tips. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. I'll come up with some really great tips to talk to your insurance agent about and things to remember to do and all that stuff. It's basically the insurance class that you guys probably didn't know you needed or wanted, but it's uh, it's coming. So
1: I'm surprised wow. you only have eight. Well, I didn't think
0: I'd be able to come up with 10. That's why it says eight. Oh, boy. And you probably and for come con- up with 10. For continuity's sake... Brian did survive. He was not boiled like a lobster, although he of has course. refused to visit the hot tub since then because I did cook him that badly. I let Brian say for himself.
1: Yeah, it was pretty bad. I had to get out <laughs> of the hot tub because I was like dizzy and going to pass out.
0: Yeah, he got out. He was all steamy and everything. I told you it was like I wanted to squeeze the half lemon on him and they, like rub the butter on him. And then he was all red and toasty like a lobster.
1: That's weird. <laughs>
0: That's what someone else said, too. Someone else said that sounded really weird. It doesn't have any weird, weird connotation to me. It really is like a lobster sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Then, on March 24th, exactly what the little lobster club <laughs> Oh, that's great. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, and then next week after that, March 24th, wait. Wait for what? Wait. Wait. Before you make that offer. That's the name of the class. It sounds
1: more like, wait, I'm constipated. That's what it more sounds like. Oh my
0: like. gosh, I'm not constipated. That is definitely not a problem I have. <laughs> I have all sorts of other problems. That is not one of them. Okay, and then on March 31st, busy March, an alternative to cash flow, saving money with rental properties. So this is sort of like, you know, you think about, it's hard to cash flow in our marketplace. It's hard to cash flow in a lot of marketplaces, but in ours in particular, it's hard to cash flow. So... You know, is it worth doing this real estate investing thing? What if you looked at it as almost like a savings tool? Brian says no.
1: (laughs) Yeah, if if everyone stops doing it, then it'll be easier for us to buy properties.
0: Oh, if they stop buying? Oh, yeah, it's been crazy. It's been real zoo. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And then April 7th, in preparation for Brian's birthday, although the next week's probably better preparation, I'm doing a special class. Never done a class like this before because I just created this excuse me, new thing. It's called, should I sell my rental? And I've created a a new trademark term which Brian loves when I create trademark terms. This one is return on true net equity. If you were gonna walk away with equity from a sale after transaction costs, after depreciation recapture, after capital gains taxes, and you had a certain amount of money that you were gonna leave with, what would you need to be getting on that return in order for you to consider selling your property? And what's the return you're getting from your real estate on that net amount after you calculate all your expenses? So it's a really interesting new concept. You're going to love it. It's going to be pretty amazing. And it yeah, kind of wish... looks
1: like it says redneck. If you kind of just rotten neck, redneck. <laughs> I mean, it's the redneck, it's you not, know, something. It does I don't know.
0: not look like that. Yeah.
1: Oh, I, my goodness. Thanks oh, for that goodness. prep for my birthday.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the next one is stress testing your real estate investing portfolio, part one. And I'll I'll give you I'll give you a hint. Part two is not the next week. (laughs) I know.
1: (laughs) I figured you were going to say part two is not the final one.
0: Well, that is also true. Part two is not the final one. Oh, my goodness. Yes, is
1: going to be terrible tonight. You should all just leave. I I agree. Because if you guys all leave, then I actually don't need to share. I don't need to like get everyone should call their friends and tell them (laughs) to log on. Oh my goodness. If we can get to 100 (laughs) people, everyone got three people to just log (laughs) on tonight. That would be awesome.
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay. And if you don't like the classes, tell Brian, uh, send him an email. He loves hearing about complaints about class topics because he has no input on what we're teaching at this point. You can suggest a class if he wants to. You can go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash suggest or call me. <laughs> Just tell me what he'd like to teach. Oh, man. But if you really don't like the classes, you can go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash suggest and you could suggest the class. You can vote on other people
1: Does know. anyone do that?
0: Uh, there was a time when people were actively suggesting on there, but it's, I really wonder if the website is still working because I haven't seen anyone like three weeks on there doing anything. So either they're like, you're right, James, you, you have taught all the classes that we need. There's nothing else I could suggest. I mean, some of the ones you're coming up with are great because I wouldn't have thought of that one or, I, or who knows, maybe they're just not willing to get feedback.
1: Well, I mean, I know when we planned and for like the past three years, we're like, uh, what are we going to teach that's different? And it's like, <laughs> right? we've taught a lot of stuff.
0: Right, exactly. So yeah. it's
1: hard to come up with like, what else do you want? Because ask a question, we have a class for that. Like we that's have all right. two hours just for that that's, question.
0: That's right. Oh yeah, you want to know about that? Let me tell you the two hour version Go goes into this particular class. For yeah, yeah,
1: you know the thing that might be good? It might be time to bring back story time and like interviews.
0: Yeah, that's work though. I mean, you got to like line up the interviews and cost me a dinner
1: and no Not one can really. go out to,
0: no one can go out to eat right now so it doesn't really cost me dinner but it cost me a dinner anyway i don't know it's just scary yeah <sighs> yeah i got high anxiety for tonight okay introductions via chat uh please make sure that you send to all panelists and attendees so that uh brian and the rest of the audience can uh see your questions that you're asking and then who are you and where are you from if you can answer that in the chat window, that'd be awesome. And then what did you wish you knew before you started investing in real estate? And if we get enough replies from you, then I don't need to share mine. So please be sure to uh, share your, your things there. And that'd be great. Then if you have questions throughout the webinar, please do use the chat window. We will try to do that. And I will start looking through the responses here.
1: What was the link for the uh, suggest link?
0: Realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash suggest. So there you go. Oh, you put it in there. Did you have to put HTTPS or whatever it was?
1: No, they can paste it.
0: Okay.
1: I mean, Dan asked. I know Dan. Dan will know how to use those yes, letters. He does. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm not worried. He can, find worried. Te- he can uh, probably tell us something about this. Hey, he's going to tell us if the site is
1: up or not, and then he's going to start suggesting stuff.
0: Oh uh, man, okay, good. Well, yeah. hopefully, he's got some good suggestions. That'd be great. Okay. Uh, there's a podcast. Uh, this, this recording will likely not make it to the podcast. Well, It depends on how personal I get, really. If, if I keep it relatively sanitized, then it may not make it up there. If I really go and start I crying on the episode, I, I, if I cry, it will not go up. I will tell you that right now. So there you go.
1: Yeah. I, that picture actually looks remarkably like what I look like right now. Yours does not. <laughs> yes that is true oh that was great i have a rogue shirt on it's just not gold and i have about that length of beard and about that length of hair yeah i think i'm wearing cool. a rogue shirt it's just hidden so. yes i know it's unfortunate
0: yeah, yeah. okay so com forward slash podcast if you want to listen to the podcast episodes and i'm glad to see that some people are dropping off from the recording so uh, thank you very much for doing that although you've dropped off so you can't hear it uh, it's also available on itunes spotify stitcher and tune in all right, it's like you get closer. My like, my nerves like increase. Like I can feel my blood pressure increasing, and I don't know. It just feels very anxious.
1: Well, just relax. So uh, Hunter says, "I wish I knew the importance of networking, connecting with people." That's a good. One. Um, I do not have
0: that on there. I, I think I didn't have that on there because I definitely was networking, connecting with people. So th- that's actually one of the things I say at the end. Is there's probably a whole separate class on things that I did know that I happened to be right about. Cause I mean, I could have happened to have been yeah. wrong about
1: a lot of this stuff too. This is a good one. I wish I knew about all of this in high school. Mm. That is a good one. Yeah. Uh, I wish I knew you guys 15 years ago. I wish I knew James and Brian before I started investing. <laughs> uh, they might
0: not be saying that after tonight. <laughs> yeah. We
1: wish we knew more about alternative forms of funding much earlier. We always thought you'd need 20% down kept us from investing uh, I wish I knew everything already. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know everything already. Not even close. Oh, that's awesome. I wish I had seen Boston on tour live. <laughs> is that Mitch. Oh yeah. Oh, that's great. I think okay. so. I have a hard time seeing who it is. Oh, here we go. Oh, man. Okay. This this is so all let's public just information, bro. This is you're good.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. So, okay. So th- to give you some background as to where I'm coming from, I probably need to give you a little bit of history. And as Brian did point out, this is all public information. It's not like I've never told anyone before. In fact, I think every blueprint has a, a lot of this stuff in it already if you've kind of read it. But so I've had to build, had to. I opted to build two multimillion dollar portfolios twice. Uh, one time because I failed <laughs> And I lost everything and I had to go and rebuild it again. So this is sort of like, for me, going back through and and doing this class was was really hard for me, actually. It's like very emotional. Um, I think from an ego standpoint, yeah, Brian's trying to give me a hug. And I it, like, seriously, if I cry, this is definitely not getting published and I'm close. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was really, really hard for me, like much harder than I thought. Um, I definitely had some sleep in days, you know, just feeling a little bit down and, you know, waking up at 11 instead of 10. And, uh, you know, just just a rough week, rough couple of days, three or four days trying to do some of this stuff. So. So, yeah, so this is this is where I'm coming from. I'm coming from. I I thought I really did at the very beginning of this thing. Like when I started doing the real estate investing, I don't even remember how long ago it was now. I really thought I was smart. I thought that I had like studied. I thought I knew everything. I thought that I had you know, gotten advice from smart people. I thought I had done a decent amount of reading. There was nowhere near the amount of information that there is today and publicly available information that there is today. But I, it wasn't like I didn't look up stuff at all. I mean, I definitely did a ton of reading. Um, you know, I, I, it's, I read about, I probably read somewhere between 50 and 100 books a year at this point. And back then it, it was close to 50. I mean, I definitely was reading about a book a week. And so it wasn't like I was not trying to seek out knowledge and get the information I needed. So I really thought I was smart doing the first one. And um, looking back now, I was really naive. Like I thought, I mean, I, this is the danger I think we hear sometimes that people come into class where they, they come to an investor class and they, they attend deal analysis one time and they don't show up for... Deal analysis a second time or a different type of deal analysis because they're like i already went to that class and i'm like my mind is like blown every time i hear that now because it's it's like i didn't realize all i didn't know i don't know that's that's basically it i did not realize all i didn't know like what i thought when i look back now i was really naive i thought i had learned a ton. I knew, now know now that I have a lot to learn. And I still feel like I have a lot to learn. Like the more I learn, the more I realize, well, I don't know a lot about a lot of this stuff. And there's some stuff that I don't think I'll ever really know because some of it's like trying to predict the future and what's the biggest force or what's the biggest factor and what's going to happen here, what's going to happen here. And I think we've proven over and over again that sometimes making these predictions is definitely way wrong. So I don't know. Um, some of the things I'll discuss tonight like what i thought i knew um i thought i knew back then i don't even know what i'm trying to say there's some of the things i'll discuss i thought i knew back then but i really don't know them and maybe i don't even know them now uh so i failed and i lost everything just for those that are not clear on that um i've, I've since rebuilt so in case you're wondering um this is intended to be some of the lessons i learned that i think might be helpful although it's it's possible they're still wrong or you can do the right. This is a great example from when Brian teaches his class on grit and tenacity and Evie especially, but Brian, Brian talks about this a lot where you can make the right decision. You can do the right thing from an odd standpoint and still be wrong and still mess up and still fail and still have to like come back because even though you do the right thing, it doesn't always work out for you. Um, And I think that was something I didn't realize at the time to the extent that I realize it now. And I think that'll come out tonight too. Um, I I will also tell you, I think I'm doing it smart this time. It's like, I thought I was smart last time. I really do think I'm trying and being smart this time, but only time will really tell if I am smart this time because I don't know right now. You want to comment on
1: any of that? Um, I'm just, I'm sure that people are interested in like, when this was, if you care to talk about that at all. I also think that the EV point is is one that people really like don't understand. And it's like, a, if I make one bet and I lose and it's a big bet, they quit. Yeah. Um, and I think the important part here is that you made a bet and I don't know what your EV calculation was then. And I don't know how to even calculate what it <laughs> no would have been and whether it was a good bet or a bad bet. But regardless, like, you learned from it. And I think the important part is that you didn't just say, ah, I'm done with this crap. Like you, you took a lot away from it and, you know, maybe it, it it took a minute to, you know, want to do it again, but you know, you came back and, and you've done it again. And in the process, you've used those learnings to help educate other people, which I, I think there is not much, not much that's more kind of respectful than that. So or yeah. commendable, I guess, is a better word.
0: Yeah, and I do appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I, I, as far as time frame goes, a lot of this stuff. And it's not me being obtuse and trying to like hide things from people. And uh, you know, someone may point out something to me. Hey, James, what about this? And I'm like, I totally forgot about that because I think it's not <clears> like a <throat> deliberate thing, but it's sort of like I don't know. I I repress them or black them out, or I try not to dwell on them. And so a lot of the past gets fuzzy for me um i try not to dwell on it because i think i get like i don't know i go into these like uh, dark spirals and stuff like that and i will tell you at the time so like i'm trying to think of when this was i think we started buying properties in 2000 and it took me a little while to get up to speed to do stuff like that that was the first kind of round doing this and i had looked at properties doing property and stuff even before then but the 2000 was the first one we bought um and then I think my bankruptcy was in 2013. So if you get a feel for that, and so that's sort of like a time frame for you to figure some of that out. Um, a, a lot of the details, I I don't remember, and if I if I do remember, I'm happy to share them with you. But um, that the, and the other thing I, I don't want people to do is and there's a tendency for people to do this, right? Like um, I don't know, I'll, I'll tell people I have ADD or or something else, and they'll come up to me afterward and they'll want to share the ADD you know, sort of stuff with me. And I do get the idea of like, you know, you're looking for someone who's similar, but please for for my mental health and maybe probably even for yours, please don't come up to me and and try to share about like all the bad stuff that's happening to you because I have a hard time getting back there myself and it can really impact me for a couple of days. And I'm not trying to be mean about it. I just, I, I would prefer it if you were sensitive to don't try to bring me back there, even if you're trying to share that you've come out of it too. And, and that we have that in common um, because it hurts me. It hurts my feelings and it, it upsets me. And so I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to do it to be mean to you. I just, it, it's just hard for me to do it. So yeah, this is why this is never getting published by the way. Um, yeah. Cause I, I like, I definitely get sensitive about this. And I like when, when things all bad went really bad and like, things got really rough for me. Like it's when you make the EV bet, you think, okay, if I fail, I can recover. When you're when you're in a period where you feel strong and you feel secure and you feel like you're confident about doing something and something bad happens to you, you think, okay, I'll just go ahead and fix that and I'll recover and I'll be back the very next day and I'll go back stronger and I'll just, you know, make another bet. It did not work out that way for me. Like for me, it was rough. I mean, long periods of trying to get even a little bit of mojo confidence whatever you want to call it back and it was hard it was it was definitely a lot of inner game stuff and yeah I have I get worked up even thinking about it okay
1: so I I think it's important though like it's not outside of this right I mean there's other things that you've talked about and and I've talked about as well where it's like you know it's I think a lot of times I think this is actually the reason this class should get published by the way is that this shows like The side of, you know, hey, there was a point at in time where you thought everything was great and then it wasn't and then you made it through it, right? You didn't give up. You didn't quit. You came back and you made it through it. And I think we have like mine are different than yours, right? But I, I definitely have at least two of those events in my life where it's like, well, things are just not going the way they're supposed to go. Um, and mine are very different than yours, Yep. but you know, like all of us have those. And I think it's important to actually, it's hard, but I think it's important to actually discuss them and know that, you know, if, if, if nothing else happened, your comfort zone expanded you, you know, in, in much the same way that, uh, who was it? Was it Ford basically said, you know, if you lost everything today, you know, what would you do? <laughs> right. And it's like, well, I would, I, I wouldn't be poor. Like I would just do it all again and do it better. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's important.
0: And so, so to comment on the fourth thing, cause I, I definitely remember, I remember that quote and I remember being, you know, a very arrogant, very cocky, you know, 20 something year old, whatever it is thinking, thinking very similar things like, okay, well, if I do it, I I might as well fail big. And then, and then I'll come back and I'll just recover and I'll do it again. That did not happen for me. Like the, the thinking before these mistakes happened and the thinking like immediately while they were happening, even and immediately after some things happened, like it was rough. And it was like a, I don't know like should I should I change stuff like I I really questioned a lot of like basic stuff like I don't know like core personality stuff core like traits I had about things like maybe this is not the way things should go I don't know it's just like there's probably a whole separate class although I'll never teach it um, on this like psychology and the sharing stuff because Brian you know like like of the, all the friends you've had and all the people you know, I am probably least likely to share, um, like personal, emotional type stuff. Like, I I'm really good listener. I, I know that I fill that role for other people and being a really good friend in that way. But as far as like dumping stuff for myself, nope, not yep. not great for me. So, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I I don't know. I think uh, I think the impact of you sharing. Uh, or expand it to anyone, right? But I think the impact of you sharing what's happened um, probably has a much broader impact than you actually will ever know. And so, you know, you failing in this way, probably helps lots of other people, hopefully not fail.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I hope that's true. I really do. You know, in some ways, it's like, if I can stop If I can prevent one person from being in that situation that I was in, that's worthwhile, right? Like trying to stop somebody from having to go through what I did, or at least maybe someone who is forced to go through something like I did, at least knowing that. One person came at this, so there is a path out. If you could get there, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's it, but I, yeah, I'm getting teary eyed. I've seen the I need to refocus for a second, so yeah, okay, here so we go.
1: I'm just gonna try and make you cry even more. Oh, um, because when you get teary eyed, I get teary eyed, so I'm just gonna, <laughs> no, this is gonna since gonna sure be halfway like, there. Is let's just push you over. Five, oh my gosh, so go. yeah, I mean, you know, people in the comments are like, yet. you know, I agree agree with what I said. Uh, makes sense, James, you're doing great. Uh, those combos are those that really hit home with newbies uh you guys are awesome sharing your vulnerabilities to help others is commendable and very helpful thank you uh and then somebody says i didn't know this of your past but seeing where you now where you are now it only makes me admire you even more right and then you are awesome james see i appreciate that thank you so there you you go all right (laughs) breathing what yeah do you need a break
0: I'm working on it. I I,
1: I, hopefully... I You want me to teach this slide?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, this is literally all 10 of them. So it's right here. This is uh, the last oh slide gosh. of the day? No, no, there's a whole bunch of other slides, but I'm going to give you the list up front. This is, and and I. there's definitely some overlap on this list. Like certain ideas, they kind of resonated, and I was like, well, that's really sort of similar to this. And so you'll you'll see them, but uh, we'll have some good discussions, I think, tonight. Uh, the first thing I wish I knew before starting investor real estate is it is not a get rich quick. Uh, um, and I thought I knew that, but I also thought that I could speed this up. I thought, you know, this would be something I could brute force um, smart through hustle, through grit, just kind of get it done and make this happen very quickly. And I will tell you uh, that is not the case. Um, And I'll share some stuff with there. The second one is actually a quote. And I I kind of refer to this as a, um, you know, not buying crap because it's at a discount. Um, But this is the quote from Charlie Munger, uh, great business, at a fair price is superior to a fair business at a great price. And I'll talk a lot about that today as I kind of talk about some different things, but the basic idea is just because you can get a property at a discount does not mean that's the property you should buy. Um, there's, there's really compelling reasons to buy quality. And I will talk about some of those tonight. Um, and that was one of the big lessons I had from kind of version one versus version two. Yeah.
1: what's well, interesting. I, I, I know this quote, right? I, I've, I've heard it from you a lot. I've seen it from his book um, that I've not read. Um, (laughs) but um, You know, like I remember when I was starting out and we were driving around and this just occurred to me, like I've never thought about this this way before where I was like, yeah, I want to buy stuff that's just ready to go. Like I'm not wanting to do any work. And you were like, that's just not normal. Like it's not what anyone else is doing. And I was like, I don't really care because I don't know how to swing a hammer. Yeah. Right. Like I can, I can like, you know, maybe clean, clean a clean the house and have it recarpeted or repainted, but that's the max. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I think about this quote now and I'm like, you know, in some form, this was, I'm buying a great house at what was a fair price. Yes. Instead of buying even a good house at a great price. Right. It's I was, I, and. And it turned out remarkably well and I, I actually think that in, in a sense, many of you know like all of the people that are buying the you know new construction builds are essentially doing this yes which I think only bodes well for them in the long run.
0: Yeah. and, and so I'll make a comment on this because I don't think I have a slide in this, although I probably should have included it and if I ever do this class again, which I probably will never do. Um, yeah we should the 44 it
1: too. of you that are here. Congrats. You're the only 44 that are ever going to see
0: this. (laughs) So, so here's the interesting thing. So um, Warren Buffett, who is Charlie Munger's business partner, they they both do like um, Berkshire Hathaway. So um, Warren Buffett originally learned from a guy named Benjamin Graham. Benjamin Graham was a college professor, a real estate investor, kind of ran a mutual fund or um, a hedge fund, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and this is, you know, Warren Buffett went to college at I think Columbia and uh, learned from uh, Benjamin Graham how to be an investor. And, and Benjamin Graham wrote a great book. It's called uh, Security Analysis. And he talks about his strategy. He also wrote a book called uh, The Intelligent Investor. And so Benjamin Graham's strategy was to buy uh, deeply discounted properties that a lot of times they were on their last leg. He used to refer to it as cigar butt type deals where you buy a property, you pick up a cigar butt and it's got a couple of good puffs left in it that it's gonna bring you some revenue. And so that was sort of the strategy that Warren Buffett was using that Ben Graham taught him. And that was Warren Buffett's primary strategy: of buying deeply discounted properties, something that was distressful that they could have, you know, a couple last puffs of life where they could make some money for him, and then he could eventually sell them off and do that. And so he'd look for discounted properties, buy them when their value kind of returns to normal, or he could get a little bit of money out of them. Then he would eventually sell them along comes this guy, Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger also grew up in Omaha. They were like, I don't know, eight years apart or something like that. And Charlie went to California, became an attorney and started doing some investing there. And somehow they came back and remet back in Omaha. And Charlie had a different strategy. And and, and Charlie was, and Warren Buffett apparently admits this, but Charlie helped Warren learn about buying quality and you know, looking at um, you know, buying quality companies that are at a discount that have some type of economic advantage or um, exceptional growth, Uh, potential in them and buying them and then holding them forever instead of this idea of buying this deeply discounted property, like um, not property, but a stock and then holding onto it until you had to sell it in the future. And so Charlie Munger was largely responsible for Warren changing his plan. And I will give you credit, Brian, because you definitely helped solidify this thinking in my mind, because one of the things I was struggling with coming out of a lot of the challenges I had is, you know, what was, what were the things that went wrong with the beginning? And sometimes it takes someone else doing a strategy and seeing you know, how that works because we a lot of times we can't visualize how things work and, and really what the problems are going to be until someone else does it and you're like, oh, and especially when you have unprecedented insight into how things work because I think being as close as I was to you, I got to see a lot of how this was working out for you. And I was like, yeah, this definitely reinforces some of these concepts that Charlie Munger was kind of teaching Warren Buffett. And so that's sort of how I look at it. Not that I am... Warren Buffett and you're Charlie Munger. In fact, it's probably the opposite, but the, the like parallel in my mind, at least is there of you coming in and helping me realize that this quote, this idea was more true than I wanted to originally believe and seeing it in a different way. Um, so thank you for doing that. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. And this isn't a, this, this was not a toot my own horn thing. And, and I will say like, I didn't know any better, right? Like my journey started with, I saw the crap my dad was buying and renting and I'm like, well, I ain't dealing with that crap, right? Like don't do any work for 20 years. You go in and the carpet's torn up and the sink's falling off the bathroom. There's barely a shower. Like, I'm like, that's just stressful. Right. So I'm like, I'm not doing it that way. And the only other thing I knew was the place that I lived in. And I was like, I bought the exact thing. Right. And then I was like, well, I know how my landlord is currently doing this and they seem to be making a lot of money. So buy one of those. And then it was like, well, why not just go buy these? Right. And I mean, a lot of it was, you know, there's definitely timing and luck and market and a whole bunch of other things. Right. But for me, like, I think this is where, you know, if, if you guys hear us teach something, I mean, We're probably right, but we could be wrong, right? (laughs) I mean, like, and this is what it is. Like, if you think that your plan is good and you vetted it and you're not just guessing, then go try it, right? Like, don't be afraid to step out of the norm because I I remember like every house we'd pull up to and James would be like, you know, we'd walk through a house and I'd be like, yeah, this is just not really ready to go. And he'd be like, this is what most people are buying. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's not what I'm buying. So pass. That's (laughs) true. And we'd go find something that looks pretty and he'd be like, well, it's, this is more expensive. And I'm like, I don't really care. <laughs> like, yeah. I just don't right? the numbers still look like they meet my criteria. So let's try it out. And you know, a lot of that is I'm, it's, it's hard work. It's grit. It's luck. It's, you know, it's, and luck is really, you know, the hard work that you put in that creates opportunity for you. Right. I don't believe in blind luck, but I think, you know, have confidence in yourself right? And then go perform, but be willing to learn from what doesn't go well.
0: Yeah. I think those are all really good points. I, I will point out my father was doing a strategy and similar to you, I was like, well, there's some problems with his strategy. I'll fix them. But I, but I kept some parts of it, like the buying properties that were deeply discounted that needed work. I mean, I think that was part of the strategy that I was like, well, I think that's the equivalent of buying something at a discount and and kind of having a margin of safety and having value and so i thought about it from that perspective then i thought i was going to fix some other things but turns out that didn't work and we'll, we'll talk about this tonight um next look at my list otherwise we're never going to get through this um, yeah, i figured the, next the whole
1: thing, this is the whole class we'll just have no. a discussion right here
0: well you know, there's a whole bunch of extra slides but there's there's some there's other slides there's 60 slides
1: oh man serious yeah, exactly.
0: yes uh, number three on my list was reserves, and I really thought I knew about reserves. I thought I was doing reserves right at the time. Um, I am doing more than I was before, and I think that was a major factor and stuff. So we'll talk about that. As am I. As your as of what
1: you're right. I do more reserves than previously, especially after COVID and the stuff that we've talked about. I think that's prudent.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. So there's probably a whole class on reserves, honestly. I think we thought it already. Maybe, maybe. There's some stuff I have yet to build about reserves that I still want to create. But um, I didn't understand the return quadrants nearly as good as I do now. And some of the nuance and subtlety in those things. And so that's a big one that I think uh, is a factor. Um, I didn't know about nomad, and I was telling Tammy about this in the hot tub last night, and she told me, she's like, Yeah, if we had known about nomad, we totally would have nomaded, and I think it would have made a big difference in a lot of the stuff. And so if I could go back and do it again, that is definitely one thing I would change. Um, I don't know if Brian would have done it differently, but I totally would have nomaded from the beginning.
1: I mean, in a sense, I I mean I I kind of nomaded once. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Accidentally, I did move <laughs> and rent the previous house
1: out. It yes. just happened to be a, a you know price point of a house in Vegas that was not adequate for being a normal <laughs> rental. <laughs> you can't buy
0: multi-billion-dollar properties and expect. It wasn't that. Right, right, right. Uh... <laughs> All right, so Novant was one of them. Uh, another one was Focus. I think. uh I think for a long period of time, I was seeking. I was. I was willing. I was open and willing to trade up a strategy that. Was working for a possibly better strategy and I was constantly spending time and resources trying to figure out a better strategy and and just I think not knowing that there wasn't a better strategy or devoting the energy to focus in on what I should have been focused on and getting better at that rather looking for side things or other things like that and so we'll talk a little bit about that uh, and it related uh, the grass isn't always greener and I'll talk about you know, looking at other markets and saying, well, they're cash flowing, we're not cash flowing here. Maybe I should be investing there and and kind of like the the downfall, some of that. Uh, the past is not equal to the future. And so um, definitely some things about well, historically this is how it's worked. So it's it's gotta work that way in the future. And now I have a much better appreciation for that is definitely not how things always work. It's not like you can look back and say, oh, we've been going up 8% a year in Fort Collins for the last eight years. I'm going to pencil that into my calculator and use 8% per year. That's false. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, a, much dip, different, a much deeper, more nuanced understanding of income from properties Rents, other income sources on properties, and specifically expenses, and you know th- this is sort of like the class that Brian teaches on capital expenses. Um, understanding like those numbers at a much better level, I think, was something I didn't quite have at the time, and that is a major lesson that I think I wish I had known back then. Kind of like the the appreciation for what expenses do I have control over? Which ones do I not have control over? Which ones are going to be very large as a percentage because they don't change much, whether you're buying a $50,000 house or $250,000 house and how those things impact stuff. I think that those things I didn't know. And then sort of the last one is I was incredibly competitive, incredibly driven to like do a bunch of stuff when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And I think Looking back now, I should have been a little bit more balanced, a little bit more patient because I do think it's timing. It's, it's like how long you've been in the market is a major factor to, to your success. And so I didn't have to push as hard. In fact, if I was going to push as hard, I probably should have pushed in other areas. But um, I probably would also recharge a little bit more and do some other things a little bit differently. So we'll talk about that. Okay, number one, it is not get rich quick. It is get rich slow, in my opinion unless you're converting a very large amount of money invested elsewhere into rentals, real estate investing is a get rich, slow endeavor. Um, And if you're taking the money and you're converting it from stuff that you already had into rentals, you're rich already. And so it's still get rich slow. Even if you have a bunch of money and you're just getting started out. Um, If you, if you have a chunk of money already and you're kind of investing in it, you might have a baseline of income coming in from the money that you're investing. However, that's not the norm. And it definitely was not what I was coming from. So um, I'll talk more about this later, but the, the idea is that I didn't have a ton of money when I got started in this stuff. So it was really hustling and trying to you know convert job income into real estate investing income. And then eventually for a period of time, at least trying to be creative and being a real estate entrepreneur and generating income from real estate entrepreneurship. Um, so it, it's get rid slow because even if you're earning... It, and incredibly optimistic for our marketplace, a 10% cash on cash return on investment, which it's really hard to do that in our local markets. It's probably closer to zero, honestly. Um, You need to have a large enough amount of cash to make that 10% that you're earning on that money support your lifestyle. And so that's really hard to do. And it was exceptionally hard to do here in our local marketplace. Um, You probably could do it in some other marketplaces, but again, this is the nuance of market to market. Um, It does help if you have a lower target lifestyle number and I probably didn't realize just how big of an impact that had, Um, you know, raising a family with two small kids and a wife and, you know, we weren't living crazy high, but I mean, I was definitely not like not eating at Qdoba. Like I was definitely eating at a Qdoba and we know we were definitely, you know, kids were doing fun stuff and, so those things definitely existed. So if you have a, larger, a lower target lifestyle number, especially early on, uh, that could have a very positive impact. If you have a very high number there, it's much harder for you to hit your numbers. I think you need to be a lot more aggressive or you have to start with a lot more money in order to get close to hitting those higher numbers. And so that's probably a, a, a kind of like sub lesson for some of this stuff here. Um, we weren't back when I got started, we definitely were not seeing 10% cash on cash numbers, return on investment, uh, with the exception of sometimes we'd find a deal where you could buy it, but we were buying them by doing the burst strategy. You know, you buy at a deep discount, you do rehab on it, you rent it out, you refinance it and pull all or most of your money out. So if we were getting a 10% cash on cash, it was only 10% because the amount we had invested was so small. So it was like very small dollar amounts, even if you were able to get that 10% cash on cash, we were not seeing numbers where you could see 10% cash on cash return, or anywhere near that, um, with large numbers that we could we could do down payments. So that's why I think it's more of a get rich slow sort of thing. So this is uh, Charlie Munger's quote. You probably tell I just finished uh, Charlie Munger's book. Um, so I'm kind of on a Charlie Munger kick right now. Although I've always been a fan of Warren Buffett stuff. So th- this is not all new to me, but it's quick. It's refreshed in my mind because I literally just finished it a couple days ago. So uh, here's a quote from Charlie Munger. The first $100,000 is a bitch, but you got to do it. I don't care what you have to do. If it means walking everywhere and not eating anything that wasn't purchased with a coupon, find a way to get your hands on $100,000. After that, you can ease off the gas a little bit. And what he's really talking about is the effort that's required for you to get that first 100K, you need to rely on your own actions, your own effort to do it. After you get 100K, the 100K itself becomes an asset that helps you get to the next 100K. And then when you get to that, the 200K helps you get to your next 100K. So the money you actually have starts to work in your favor to get you to the next step. For that first one, it's all you. And you got to like really put your head down. You got to work hard. You got to make it happen. And it's really challenging to do. And he acknowledges that. Um, No, he did this at a a shareholder meeting for, uh, for Berkshire Hathaway is my understanding. Do you want to add something up, Brian? I saw you nodding and bobbing.
1: Yeah. I mean, so for me, if you go back a slide, I would, I would choose to reword this a little bit. I would, or forward. I don't know what that slide is though. <laughs> can't comment on it yet. Uh, but for me, like, I don't really, I, in my own personal life, I make a distinction quite heavily between rich and wealth, right? Yes. So for me, this would be get wealthy slowly, right? To me. The rich is not the goal um, being able and and rich to me is the, you know, I can demonstrate that I'm driving a Lamborghini or whatever, and kind of more showing off the money to me. It's, are you wealthy enough? And wealthy is, do you have whatever it is that you are doing? Do you have enough time with your family? Do you have whatever your why is? Have you accomplished it? Right. And I don't care if you have a million dollars, if you only need 300,000 to do that, then do you have that? Right. So to me it's it's really get wealthy slow and, and live up to your why. So I would I would add that to this slide and then you can go to the next slide. Um and, and this one, I mean, I I couldn't agree more, right? I like I I talked to my kids about this even. Um, and it's like, you know, when you start out, things are gonna be hard, right? What you see now is not where you will start. Right. This is, you know, like, yes, you will. You'll not live in the house that we live in. You will live in a shitty apartment that has one bedroom and one bath. And, you know, you'll and I tell them this story like I had a college roommate um, and we rented a one bedroom apartment that had a kitchen that was literally like six square feet, right? Like not very big. And we slept in the same bedroom in different beds. And I tell my kids this because I want them to understand, like, you know, you don't start here. And the funny part of the story is my feet would hurt every morning when I woke up and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And one night I woke up and my my feet were basically at the head. I'm not sure why he didn't put his feet next to my feet, but like our beds were in an L shape and I woke up and he's got his fist cocked like at two in the morning. And I'm like, Bro, what are you doing? And he's like, you're snoring. And he was punching my feet at night. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I was like, dude, you can just wake me up. You don't need to punch me. Uh, that's it was horrible. But yeah. I think knowing that you're gonna have to go through that. And I, I try to explain to them, even though you know the oldest is 13, I'm like, you know, when you have when you get that first chunk of money, you can then use it to invest, which then makes you more money. And it like the more that you have, the easier it is to make, the more opportunities you have. Which totally seems unfair, but this is why you have to put your foot down, yep. like on the gas, a hundred percent right now, and get yourself to the point where you have some money to actually be able to earn it. And whatever is in your your head as you hear me say this, if you right now are like listening to this and you're like, but but I have you know kids and COVID and tough shit, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like, and I'm not being a jerk. It just it doesn't matter. Like. There are other people in your situation that are going to do it. And so if anyone can do it, you can do it too. And what you have to know is you just have to decide you want it bad enough, right? In any situation, you can eventually get there. So it might take you longer. That doesn't matter. But you have to be dedicated to the process. And once you start it, as Dan just said, right, it does snowball. And it becomes, it becomes uh, uh, almost at some point... You're like, well, that's almost too easy, right? Like, okay, well, I have all these properties and this, you know, 20 unit apartment comes on. And I'm like, well, I can just go refinance out of these other two properties and buy this thing. And you're like, well, that's stupid. I never would have been able to do that 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. And you don't realize how it, and it's, 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 it becomes easy, but it's not, it's not been easy, right? right? It was a ton of hard work that most people are not willing to put in
0: early on. yeah, and, or and the, at the any point, get, really. Yeah, and then the longer you do it, I, I think your philosophy changed a little bit, but we can talk about that another time. But I think it's like the early push, it's all your effort. And then later on, it becomes slightly less your effort because your other investments are kind of like pulling their own weight. And then you kind of get compounding. So you could do less and less, or you can keep pushing and grow faster. I think that's yeah. how you can look at it.
1: And I, and I think, again, it become it goes back to that first slide is have you hit your point where you're like, yeah, I'm at my why I I, I don't need to have Warren Buffett's, you know, billions of dollars or Bill right. Gates's billions of dollars. I mean, just it's not necessary.
0: Yeah. So to kind of go and explain this a little bit better, this is uh, from another website. I didn't create these charts. It's from uh, fourpillarfreedom.com. And the web address for the where I got these charts from is on there. But this shows you. Um, if you're trying to accumulate a million dollars and you're investing $10,000 annually at 7% annual rate of return, it shows you the amount of time it takes you to get to each $100,000. So the first one takes you 7.84 years to get to the first 100K. That's you like having to generate all of it yourself, like working hard, putting in the time, putting in the effort. Like that's the, you know, not eating unless you have a coupon and, you know, walking everywhere and all that stuff. But then the next one only takes 5.1 years. So that's the next time it takes to get 100k more. Then the one after that is only 3.78 years, then the one after that's only 3.01 years, then it's 2.5 years, then 2.14, then 1.87, then 1.66, then 1.49, then 1.35 years to get that last 100k in order to get to a million. What's interesting, they broke it down on this website of the time, of the overall time it takes you to get to a million, is spent getting the first 100K. 74% is the next 900K. And that's the point, is that you really need to hustle, put your head down, and get that first 100,000, and then take over and let the rest grow. This is the same website. It just breaks down and shows you 26% was the first 100K, took 17% of the time to get that second 100K, and then 57% to get the remaining 800,000. So a little bit more than half the time to get 80%. Once you start getting some money working for you and investing. And then this is the last one. It took you 7.84 years to get the first 100,000, but it takes you 6.37 years or less time to earn the last 400,000. So the same amount of time it took you to earn the first 100,000, it took you less to earn the 400,000 at the end. And so this is like Dan saying it snowballs. Yeah, it snowballs. Like at this point, you know, my contributions that I'm making to my like from my actual real estate brokerage, the income, the the amount I'm contributing is a very small percentage to what the overall portfolio is doing. And so my my like personal activity, my personal effort matters less and less because the magnitude of what is growing from the asset base becomes more and more. And I don't know if I completely understood it. I definitely didn't understand it at this depth when I was doing this the first time. I mean I I had this like vision of okay, I'm going to make this big asset base and it's going to pay out $100, $200 a month in cash flow, And so I need 100 properties or 200 properties. I'll kind of talk to you how I got that math in order to get the amount of money I needed to live on. And so I, I kind of had that in mind. And I was like, you know, the growth will kind of keep pace with inflation, maybe do a little bit better. I didn't understand it like I do now. And I think understanding it like I do now I could be much more turtle-like, slow and steady wins the race, and systematically invest and do a lot better. And I think I understand that a lot better now than I did before. So, I hope that helps you.
1: Yeah, I, I think one thing, and this is <clears throat> this is probably tangential, but like as as you're thinking about this, I was thinking about the Millionaire Next Door book, right? Mm-hmm. And really, like, it's one thing to earn your first hundred k; it's another thing to have it given to you. Right. And so, you know, if you're out there and you're like, oh yeah, like I have a hundred K that, you know, my grandpa died or whatever, and left me a bunch of money. I will just tell you that that is not the same hundred K. It is not, it it may seem like it on paper, but it isn't the same. Um, And if you don't understand that, go read the millionaire next door so that you can like understand how generationally the people that earn it then the next generation and then the people that lose it <laughs> two generations later it's very interesting but it is you know uh, robert says you know it, the pride is in the struggle and a lot of it is when you work that hard to build something it's you have a lot of pride in it but you also just you understand it right you know how you got there and so if you knew how to make 100k you can now know how to make a million if you got handed 100k you may not know how to make a million
0: yeah, that's a good point. I, I'll also point out, and I know, it hurts me to think about this, but I think this is true without really like looking it directly in the eyes and really letting it into my soul. But um, I, I think the earning of a hundred k after a huge setback is also, I don't know, it's it it does something to you that even the first hundred k for me didn't do. Um, it's a very different hundred k. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but there's something there so hopefully that'll help somebody who is on the verge or has to recover or something like that i don't know
1: yeah i okay i i could understand that
0: yeah all right so uh yes yeah, so otherwise we're going to be here for three hours so let me move a little bit well we're not we're season. not
1: posting it right so i mean there you go we can be a three-hour we, class
0: there you go we can do whatever this might be
1: one of the most important classes we've ever taught
0: yeah <laughs> Okay, let me breathe and kind of get through some of it because there's some stuff here that I definitely feel sensitive about. Uh, So give or slow cash flow. So when I first got started, I was focused on cash flow. I mean I the reading I did all the like people I talked to was like cash flow cash flow cash flow cash flow cash flow cash flow. I mean that was really what the talk of the town was. And I happened to live in a town where cash flow was really hard. It was hard with 20% down. I mean we were able to get a little bit of cash flow but it wasn't great. And when I was buying I wasn't I didn't have a bunch of 20% down payments. I didn't have a 25% down payment. I didn't have a lot of that. And so we were doing creative stuff and it was really hard to get your creative stuff to cash flow, you know, when you're and you're putting a lot less than 20% or 25% down. So when I first started doing this, in my mind, for somehow I, I came up with this number and I probably should have thought this through a lot more than I did at the time, but I had in my mind $100 per month means I need 100 properties to make 10K per month. And that was sort of my mental map moving forward. And um, now that I think about that, it's, it would be really hard to manage hundred properties. Um, you know, even with a property manager, just kind of staying on top of that stuff and, and, you know, keeping track of everything and taxes and all that other stuff there. Um, so it was problematic. It was a problematic plan to begin with. Uh, At the time, I thought it was smart. I thought it was like, hey, let's get there and do this. And honestly, it was even worse than what I'm about to say because I had a partner and we each wanted 10K a month from the business. So we really needed to have 200 properties doing $100 a month or 100 properties doing $200 a month, which was really tough to do. Um, So, and this was in my mind, it was my first step number, right? Like I didn't go into this thinking I was gonna have a you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year type business. I was going and thinking it was going to be really successful and it was going to be a lot more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. So I, that was like my let's get to here. And then we'll talk about how we're going to get to whatever it was phase two, where we really turned on the afterburners and did it. Um, So it's kind of there. That's where I was at the time. Uh, Then I switch and I plan to use it to generate income through pop. So originally I was trying to do this and replace income. I mean, I was like, okay, if I can get to hundred properties, then I could do this. I I can get to the point where I replace my income and then we really can focus on wealth building. And we have a a passive income baseline that we can work from. And that was my original thought and the amount of effort and the amount of time it was taking in order to acquire the properties at the pace that we needed to do, it was going to be a long time. So we, we kind of switched a little bit and started looking at generating some type of pop. And and by pop, I'm going to define it as, um, when you sell to a tenant buyer on a lease option and that tenant buyer cashes you out and you realize the $20,000 or $30,000, um, proceeds from the sale of that property. What I figured we would do is we would take that money and we would use some or all of that in order to live on. So we need to have enough of these pops lined up coming in two or three or four years out. So that by the time you got to two or three or four years out, when you get to that point, then you'd have enough money coming in that you could support yourself, but you have to be growing these rental properties in the meantime doing that. And so that's sort of how we started looking at it. Um, Pops could have also been fix and flips, quick turns. And we thought we would do those as they came up. And, and we did not do a lot of these because that we definitely realized early on, that was not my strategy. Like I, uh, I grew up fixing houses and swinging a hammer and stuff like that. And it was not for me. Um, I definitely did not enjoy that part of the process and it's possible it was the way I was raised where it just felt, it just felt like work from the beginning, right? It felt like a chore, like, you know, you come home from school and, you know, you're supposed to frame this wall so that when dad comes home, you know, you you can look over and make sure you did it right. And then, you know, we're doing drywall the next day and you're sanding drywall four times because we did, uh, we didn't do knockdown. We did, you know, the the sheer coating for the, so it was like all that stuff. And I was like, oh no, I'm not doing this. So anyway, um, it could have been uh, fix and flips, which we didn't do a lot of lease option exits, which was a strategy that I thought we were going to go and do a lot of stuff and a lot of wholesaling. And so the wholesaling though, is you're taking money, you're, you're kind of like trading dollars today for what you could have had as a long-term investment for a property later on down the road. And you were giving up a lot of the upside. And so while we definitely did some wholesaling, it was not, um, it was not the preferred strategy. Um, And so we did that. Eventually, and this is like me abridging this story to kind of make it fit into the class. um, I eventually opted to go to make the POPs actual real estate brokerage commissions. And so all I had to do is help someone buy a house, and I could get paid, you know, 10k or whatever it was um, to do that. And so that's sort of how that evolved. Um, from doing the creative entrepreneurship where I had to go talk to a whole bunch of sellers, get a seller to agree to sell a property at discounts to then put a tenant buyer in there or uh, you know, wholesale the property to someone else in order to make that money to just helping someone else buy a property that was already done to that point. And so for me, it made a lot more sense to do the pops as real estate commissions. In retrospect, and this is hard for me to even say, it may have been arguably better if I had just gotten a job. And, you know, done some type of nomad thing and just, you know, lived on whatever it was, got to that 100K, the 200K, 300K, and just built it that way. And, you know, it's at the time, it didn't feel like that was the better option, um, but it might have been. So I don't know, just something to think about.
1: Would it change your course of history?
0: It totally would have. And, And that's the hard thing for me doing this, like looking back, you know, kind of stuff is. I don't, I don't usually go back and have regrets about, Oh, I should have done this differently. I should have done this differently. But if I'm forced to, you know, maybe that wasn't the right choice. Maybe it was, it would have been better to do this other thing. And, and it's hard to say, right? I mean, I could have gotten distracted by something else and not where I am. And it's really hard to to know, but I don't know. It's, it seems like there was a lot of um, shots on goal that didn't end up being goals. And Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Maybe it was a persistence grit sort of thing. And that was the lesson I had to take from it. But uh, it's, it's really hard
1: to say in retrospect. So. So <clears> the, <throat> the, the, the story that this brings to mind is <clears throat> when I worked at Microsoft um, and my, the VP who had been my VP for most of my career, um, she's still there. She's amazing. Uh, Lisa Brummel, you can look her up. Um, and there was a point in time where she basically two different, two different points in time. Right. The first one was, Hey, we want you to go do this other new thing. And it was like, that wasn't in my like path. Right. It wasn't what I was like trying to do. And she basically said, you know, you can either stay where you're at and be, you know, a good or even great, you know, manager and business owner or, you can go do this completely new thing. And if it's successful, it'll be rockstar level, right? And it's like, you're like, you have to make this decision between like, yeah, but the rock star thing might fall flat on its face, right? This might be a three year waste of time. And then where am I? I'm out of line for my other thing, right? I think that was the first one. And then more related uh, was the one when I decided to leave Microsoft and I went and talked to her. And she basically, she looked at me and she was like, you know, and I, I, for those of you that don't know, I left to play poker professionally. Um, And so a lot of people are like, what, what is wrong with you, bro? Like you are messed up in the head. You're going to leave your job at Microsoft where you make lots of money and you're going to go play poker. And she was like, I totally understand where you're at. She said, if I was your age and my dream wasn't poker, she's like, if I thought I could make the LPGA tour, I would totally quit and go try it. And I think having not tried what you tried, I think would have been a disaster and a much larger regret than ever being able to sit here and look back and go, oh, I should have gotten a job and made 200 or 300K and then invested. Like that would have been a huge, huge regret for you, I think.
0: Yeah, it's maybe true. Yeah, I I think the challenge with a lot of these looking back things for me is I get overly emotional thinking about it. And so I try not to think about it. Yeah. But- yeah. We're going to have to think about it
1: every week now. Oh, yeah. So right. I'm, I'm going to cover a couple of questions here. Yeah. Uh, a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's just one. I, I left it from before, so I'll cover it so we can move on. <clears throat> uh, two of them. Uh, I've yet to start begin investing. I'm stuck at home with the kids because of COVID and not able to work, looking to learn as much as possible until I get the income to begin investing, looking to begin sometime this year, fingers crossed. So Again, everything you've heard tonight, you know, pedal down. Don't let any of that stand in your way. And every time that anyone, not just you, feels like, oh, hey, uh, this is why I can't do something, uh, I just want you to remember me looking you in the eye and going, bullshit, that's a limiting belief. And then I want you to examine to see if, if it's actually something that's preventing you from doing it. Because it probably isn't, and we all have them, right? And, and James and... Royce and I, and we try and call each other. It's like, yeah, that just seems like a limiting belief, Brian. Like that's just crap. Like you can do it if you want to, you just, you're choosing not to. And so I don't know your situation and I'm not pointing anything at you particularly, but definitely examine where your kind of beliefs lie because there are people who are in really dire situations who still manage to do amazing things. And so it really becomes how bad do you want it? And when can you, you know, step forward and move towards that? So, um, I, I hope you're able to start this year and I, I grant you COVID has messed lots and lots and lots of stuff up. Yeah. Um, I literally hear that every day right now because we're hiring for a position and it's like got laid off cause of COVID. I got laid off cause of COVID and I had a great job and then COVID and it's like, Oh yeah, it's crazy. Uh, Next question. I'm in my current first home looking to jump to the next and claim that the new one is primary residence. So essentially nomad, which is awesome. Uh, Rent my place. First time landlord. Nervous because of CO laws, which I assume is met as Colorado laws that heavily favor tenants and not landlord, which actually isn't true in our state. Our state is actually much more geared towards landlord, although it's swung a little bit, but it is not uh, like California where it's and maybe this is supposed to be California right <laughs> in which case you're dead on uh, but in in Colorado and even anywhere like it's okay if the laws favor the tenants right don't be negligent like treat your tenants as human beings I mean and and most of this stuff never comes into play so don't let the don't let tenant or landlord laws heavily favor one way or the other deter you from being an investor um, yeah. And then what do we got? Uh, and Brittany says, thank you so much for that, which is good that I didn't, she didn't just like log off. <laughs> <laughs> so you already have the right mindset. Brittany. I will just say that like for, for you to actually hear me say that and be like, thank you. Like you're, you're going to make it. So yeah, go get one. it done. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're well on your way. Cause a lot of people would be like, F you, Brian. <laughs> It's probably true, which is fine. I, I totally am happy with that. And then I just go, great. I'm, I'm kind of done helping you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me uh, push on
0: because uh, we're at slide 18 of 63. Uh, so fair price. There's a lot more to deal analysis than the numbers on the spreadsheet. Um, it's it, you have to read into the spreadsheet and I don't think we can even create a good spreadsheet to really do this justice because you need to truly understand what each number means and understand what is likely to improve. What is likely to stay the same? What do you have control over? What do you not have control over? So there's, there's a lot of nuance and subtlety to the spreadsheet and understanding that. Um, and, and there's this idea of what is a fair price to pay for a property. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then, so um, Early on, when I was doing this stuff, I was focused on buying primarily lower-priced properties and at a discount. Um, And that was what I was considering my margin of safety when I was buying properties. And I was primarily using the Burr strategy, the buy, uh, rehab, uh, rent, and then refi model, where I'd leave as little money in the deal as possible, or... I would go and I would buy properties creatively, like uh, do marketing, talk to motivated sellers, uh, find a seller that it was in their best interest to allow us to come in and start making payments on their existing loan. And I would acquire the property. I'd make payments on their loan. Sometimes I'd have to give them a little bit of money in order to buy you know, their share of the equity. And then we would take that over. We'd usually put a tenant buyer in the property, allow the tenant buyer to rent the property until they were able to um, buy the property from us. And then we'd make a pop or whatever it was. So that was the two primary strategies I was using, but the discount part of it was not the only margin of safety. And that's the really important takeaway that I definitely understand now that I didn't understand before is that buying a property discount may not even be the best margin of safety that you can buy. Uh, Sometimes buying a property at a fair price that has really good long-term economics is a much safer investment than buying a property and getting a mere $20,000, $30,000, $50,000 discount on it, especially depending on the price, you know, like like that dollar amount. Um, And so there's a really good chapter in the uh, Dow of Charlie Munger by David Clark. This is the chapter that I was referring to. However, because of time, I I originally planned on reading this to you, and it's it's a really good example where uh, they talk about buying two different stocks in two different companies. One where it looks like it's the obviously better deal, the other one where it doesn't look like it's as good of a deal, but the underlying economics of the second stock are much better. Like the growth rate that they're going to see in that second stock is estimated to be much higher, and it turns out it's better to buy the one that has. Much better longer term economic potential than the one you're buying at presumably a better discount, the one that's earning a little bit of money today. And so the temptation for you in real estate, the equivalent is sometimes you're tempted to go buy a property that has $100 a month cash flow now when it would have been better for you to buy the one that has break-even or slightly negative cash flow, if that other property has better long-term economics. It's in a better part of town. It's a better quality property. It's a better, uh, you know, the, the maintenance of the property is going to be lower. We're likely to see higher uh, rent increases on that type of property than one in a D-class D neighborhood. You know, it's all these kind of like subtle nuances that make the difference in property selection. It's not always about oh, this one makes positive $100 a month. This one makes negative $100 a month. I should always buy the $100 month positive. That's not true. And I think I didn't realize that to the same extent that I realized it today that quality comes in different forms. A fair price is not just discount. From the current appraised value is that you really want to look at this. And, and on that note, and I, I don't have time to teach an entire class on this, and there's definitely going to be an entire class coming on this, but I just made a whole new series of charts for you that now shows the rate of change of any variable in the real estate financial planner. So, for example, this is a chart showing you total true cash flow on a portfolio of four properties, three of them rentals, one of them you're living in as nomad. And it shows you the total true cash flow. Each line is a year now. I made this a year chart. And this is where you actually pay off property one. And then this, this is the first one paid off, the second one paid off, this is the third one paid off, and this is where it increases. But the part of this chart that I wanna show you, it's not just raw cash flow. Part of now what I think you need to look at, and part of what I didn't understand before is which one are you likely to see your rents increasing faster? And so now I can show you with this dotted yellow line how quickly the rent is increasing. And so the rate of change, the percentage that the rent is increasing is on the right-hand side. This yellow dotted, orange dotted line now shows you how quickly rent is changing over time. And then you could see the normal economics for a lot of properties is the rent tends to slow down over time because you've, you've already got to the certain point where it's a certain dollar amount and for it to grow more, it's growing at a slower rate. But that's not always true. And so there's a lot to go through with this chart. But I just want to point out that we're not just looking at raw rent. We're also looking at how quickly rents will grow, how quickly property values will grow, what the quality of a property is, and the things that are related to quality like lower maintenance and lower vacancy and lower turnover and all those other things, they all have an impact on things. And they're more important than you might imagine at first. And so that's sort of the lesson that I kind of want to take away from that.
1: And all of those little nuggets when you don't come back to the same class that we teach the second time and the third time, those are the nuggets that you miss. And those nuggets become really important.
0: I think they do. Because, you know, there's like the first glance of how the blocks sort of fit together. And then you start realizing, you know, it's more than just the blocks fitting together. It's like, you know, what order you place them in and, you know, the orientation of them and how big of a gap do you put between the blocks and,
1: this is literally all, why I went to the effort to teach people how to build the spreadsheet so they could see the interaction between the numbers, right? Which yeah. is a huge, like, just, it's not going to happen. But that's the goal, right? It's like, how do you get people to understand this is how all the numbers interact? And the only way you do it is you go through and you figure it all out on your own.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and Skylar says, I'm definitely going to read that. I'm assuming she means that article from uh, the Charlie yeah. Munger book, but th- that's just one page of the book. And, and honestly... There's lots of other examples. If you search the web, you could probably find versions of that. But it's a pretty good, excuse me, a pretty good example of why it's not obvious that you always pick the one that seems better at first blush, that you have to look deeper than just cursory surface level type numbers. Yeah, Dow of Charlie Munger, that's the name of the book. Okay, reserves. Uh, and we probably need a two hour class of reserves, but I'll, I'll give you like my, you know, one slide version of reserves tonight. So at the very beginning, I was really stretching to even buy a property like this was me um, relatively early on trying to, you know, get started, make stuff happen, kind of like push a little bit out of my comfort zone to do things. So I was stretching and I probably had some reserves, but nowhere near the, the reserves that I found out later that I was supposed to have and not even close to where I am today with the amount of reserves that I keep. So like if, if you look at my progression of like how much I think you need in reserves, I started off with basically zero. You know, I thought uh, incorrectly, totally incorrectly, but I thought at first that having access to a large amount of credit was good enough for reserves. Oh, that was wrong. That was way wrong. But that's where I started. I met with a CPA early on uh, with a few properties, and they told me six months of reserves for each property. That, re- that like hurt me. It like, like After that meeting, I felt like that's too slow. There's no way I'm going to be able to have six months of reserves and hit the numbers I need to hit in order to get to my 100 properties with $100 a month. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to come up Mm -hmm. with that money. I don't have enough money for 25% down. So like, I'm not going to be able to do that. So I got to buy these properties creatively in order to do the creatively and to be able to support myself and have this money coming in from, you know, either doing burr or creative financing or whatever. I mean, I, I need, I need more. I need speed. I need velocity in order to kind of hit my goals. So this six months, I fought that advice hard. Like mentally, it was hard for me to do emotionally. I mean, deep down. I knew it was right. <laughs> like, I was like, uh, th- that's why I fought it so hard. I was like, how can they say that? And, but you know, like, you have to get there. It's just you're fighting it. You're like, this is going to hurt me. This is going to slow me down. I'm not going to be able to hit my goals. And that really, I struggled with that for a long time. I was like, six months. I mean, there's no way we can buy at the pace we need to buy. If every time I need to buy a property, I need another 12K beyond what I need to get into the property and all the reserves I need on the other properties. There's no freaking yeah. way.
1: there's there's probably a really good lesson here in that, because like the one of the first times I, I heard about reserves in a way different than I thought about them because I just thought, well, I've got I've got enough to cover stuff if it comes up and I'm not really concerned and I, I've got lines of credit if I needed it. But I think when you if you ever find yourself like really fighting something, you might want to just stop and go, maybe they're right. Because when I heard reserves, I actually heard it from uh, people in the mastermind group. And it was like, you know, they were like two years, like really experienced investors who'd been in the game for 30 and 40 years were like, you want to weather anything, you need two years of reserves for every property. And I was like, there is no freaking way, right? Like that is absurd discussion. Like, how is that even possible? And you look at it now and you go, well, COVID, like, things could have been a lot worse than they were. Right. And some of them still aren't great, but I mean, they could have gotten a lot worse. So you can easily go, oh, well, if you didn't have rent coming in for any of your properties for a year, would you be okay? If not, do you have enough reserves? It's hard. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to grow you know, yeah. once you're in like stabilized mode and you're just like, yeah, I can just save more money and like not spend anything. And yeah, it's easier to build that up. But if you're trying to grow, you're like, I need to use this money to go buy another house.
0: Yeah. I think it's that's hard. what was, that was, what was so hard for me. It says like, there's no way I can do this reserve six months of reserves and still grow at the pace that I need to grow at in order to hit even reasonable goals. So I, I really struggled with that for a long time. Um, then eventually I did build up uh, six figures in reserves, which I thought was a compromise at the time to what I thought you know was, was good. It was, it was a healthy six-figure reserve. It wasn't like just over hundred K. Um, but even with that, like that was before the first failure. Like that was my reserve amount before I kind of had this big crash and stuff like that. Um, I was not prepared for a prolonged loss of income and a real estate market correction and not knowing when the market correction was going to end. And I got to the point where I was like, I wonder if I'm throwing good money after bad. And I've, I really struggled with that for a long time. I talked to my advisors. I like had some very you know, long conversations, sleepless nights, just struggle with that decision and how it went down. But I, I mean, I'm way more than that now, more than two years in case people are wondering, okay. All right. Uh, return quadrants. And I'll try to go through some of this fast because I realized we're a little bit behind on time. So um, and there's there's a really good, very long article I wrote on these return quadrants and kind of some of the nuance there. It's under real estate financial forward slash return dash quadrants, plural. Um, and if you go there, there's it, there's some detail. It's me writing out like almost a two hour class for you. On, on these things. In fact, I probably should publish a book on this, but this is what I mean by the return quadrants, by the way, the four different areas you have returns and then the reserves part here and the total you get there. You guys have probably seen me teach this in class. And, and here's one of the things I want to point out about the return quadrants. And it has to do with what you hear versus what I'm actually saying. And, and I, sometimes I think they're different. And the, the, the example I like to think about is have you ever had a misunderstanding with someone where you thought you really understood what they were trying to tell you, but it really was not. You like, you, you, you like thought you knew and you could almost like finish your sentence and you could tell them stuff and maybe even like most of it fit. And so they thought maybe you did understand but maybe you're just describing it a little bit differently. But turns out, you find out later, they did not understand. You guys did not understand each other. You were, you were like talking past each other and it was not, you were not on the same page. I think sometimes that when I teach the return quadrants that I'm saying something and you're hearing something different than what I'm saying. Um, so try to sort of listen to what I'm actually saying and not what you think I'm saying, um, because there's a lot here, and, and it's, it's a lot of detail. So really brief version. The top half of the return quadrants, appreciation and cash flow, those are speculative we have very little control over whether or not properties are gonna go up or down in value. And to a lesser degree, we have very little control over whether rents are gonna go up or down and how much cash flow is. So in case you never picked up on that before, those are not really certain returns. Now we can try to buy things where we're likely to have appreciation, where we're likely to have positive cash flow, but realize that's largely outside of your control once you acquire the property. We don't know, okay? Now, the ones on the bottom, debt pay down and tax benefits, those are less speculative. They are more certain. Did I say they are guaranteed? No. I said less speculative. We really don't. They're less likely to change, although they can change. Debt pay down less so but tax benefits, definitely a possibility. So realize, and go go dig into this. I don't have time to teach like the whole class on return quadrants tonight, but that's there's some nuance there for you to understand about how that all works and what's really going on and really dig in and find out like what makes up the return there and how does that really play out and what really impacts whether I'm gonna see that going up or down and what can I do? What can I do about making sure that happens or doesn't happen and what risks are there for me and how that all kind of plays out. Um, cash. Cash now is on the right-hand side. That tends to be your cash flow and your tax benefits. That's the money you can usually spend right away within the first year, within each year, I should say. Cash later is the stuff on the left-hand side. That tends to be appreciation and debt pay down. That's the equity you're building up in your property that you can only usually access when you do a refinance and get the money out, cash out, refinance, or you sell the property. Okay. And then realize one of the things that I think most people didn't realize, and I definitely didn't understand like I do today, is this concept of return on investment versus return on equity and how those change over time. Specifically, how your return on equity actually decreases. It goes down over time. So that's something I didn't realize how that worked exactly. And now I understand it much, much better. And I think it's an important lesson, something I wish I had known Long time ago. Um, also, the subtle point of once you pay off a property and, and exhaust your depreciation benefit, the tax benefits of depreciation. Eventually, all you're left with is unleveraged depreciation. You know, a whatever the raw appreciation is for your city that doesn't get magnified by having a loan on a property and your capitalization rate, your cap rate on a property. So eventually, your property returns. Basically, they they are asymptotic and eventually become unleveraged appreciation and cap rate. So I think those were two things that um, were there. Okay. Any questions or anything before we get into new stuff?
1: Nope. I handled okay, a good. couple that we don't need to have just for time reasons.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, so Nomad, this is one of the things I wish I had known about early on. Um, I started investing primarily using the BRRRR strategy, buy, rehab, rent, refinance, uh, trying to buy properties where I left very little or no money in a deal. Um, And also buying creatively, like buying subject to or with wrap financing. Those were the two strategies that I primarily was using very early on. And one of the big issues with both the burst strategy and buying creatively is this. Poor property selection. You don't get to choose from all the properties available in the MLS when you have to buy it at a deep enough discount where you can buy it rehab it, rent it out, and refinance it and pull your money out. There's a very limited number of properties where you could do that. And so you end up selecting oftentimes sub- sub-ideal type properties, properties that you wouldn't otherwise pick to be in your portfolio. But the only reason you're picking them to be in your portfolio is because you can buy them at a discount and add them to your portfolio for little or no money. And those do have a cost associated to adding them to your portfolio, because if you wouldn't have added it to your portfolio, maybe there's a reason why you wouldn't have added it to your portfolio. And even though you're getting it for free, sometimes free isn't good enough to add it to your portfolio. Okay. So, yeah. Poor property selection. And that also applies to the creative financing ones. If you're trying to go buy a property creatively from a motivated seller, you're doing marketing and you're asking for a seller to call you because they've got some type of real estate challenge that you think you can possibly solve. I think that that is a major uh, factor because not everybody is gonna be motivated and allow you to buy their property that way. And so it's also poor property selection. It's really hard to find ideal properties to do that. And that's one of the things I did differently the second time around is I didn't just buy anything for my portfolio. I was very selective in what I was going to add to it. Um, And those properties, the Burr ones and the creative ones, they do not tend to align with the quality properties that we talked about when we said fair price. We talked about buying a great company at a fair price versus buying a fair company at a great price. That's what I'm talking about here. It's another way of me saying this. Another issue that I had with the Burr and creative, sub, creative buying properties creatively subject to and refinancing was living expenses. I had to figure out a way, if I wasn't going to work a job, if I was going to be a real estate entrepreneur and try to generate money from this, uh, was generating living expenses. So I had to do it either with cash flow or these pops by having a tenant buyer live in the property. And then, you know, two or three or four years later, they come out and I get 20, 30, 40K, whatever it was at the time to do that. So that was another challenge of doing it. Um, the second time when I, after I failed and I had to rebuild, I primarily focused on 20, 25% down and then a little bit of Nomad. And so for those of you that are kind of aware of what I'm doing, that's what I primarily did uh, for version two.
1: Okay. Hey, James. Um, yes. Knowing the return on equity goes down over time, what do you do about it? Do you try to exchange out properties as time goes on to optimize or something else? I know mean, so, you got a whole class on this. Yeah,
0: it's, it's a little bit beyond the scope of this. There there are things you can do. You can actually refinance and you know change your return on equity ca- calculation to do that. But I do think that adds additional risk. And so it depends on where you are in your, in your kind of like investing career and what you're trying to accomplish as to what the correct answer for that is. Um, I will tell you that your portfolio tends to become Uh, slightly less risky over time as your equity position increases. And I think that lower return is a reflection of your um, reduction in risk because of the um, less debt that you have, your kind of like debt to equity ratio, or I'm sorry, your debt to uh, net worth ratio. And so there's a whole class on, on some of that as to Um, you know, what that means and why. And and I probably should have time to think it through and really give you a a much better answer. But that's like off the top of my head uh, while I'm distracted with some other stuff. So
1: why 25% and not 20%?
0: (laughs) So the short answer is um, you get a much better interest rate for a 25% down than a 20%. Um, and it's not that much extra down if you've got some resources going there, and it significantly improves your cash flow to do it. Um, so we, we've done classes before, I think, where we compared 20 25% down. The, the which ones they were escapes me right now, but this is not a new discussion. Um, this kind of 20 versus 25%. We've talked about a lot in in various other classes and showed you the numerical differences of why you want to do that. One of them is definitely the financing class where I show you the difference in interest rate between a 20% down uh, payment for an investor and a 25% down. It is way, way better. Like your cash flow significantly increases because number one, you're borrowing less. And number two, your interest rate is crazy better than uh, doing the 20% down. So that's the short answer for that one too. Okay, so one of the things I wanted to point out, you know, this we we talked about this idea of the first 100k, the kind of one that I'll, you know Charlie Munger says is kind of a bitch to get to, and I wanted to show you just very briefly why Nomad can be an amazing way for you to get to that first 100k. So this is you in your second year when you you convert that first property you bought to a rental, and you can see that. Just by holding that property, even with negative cash flow in our marketplace, this is a property that you could have bought you know, three months ago in Northern Colorado. It's probably one of the better properties, but it's, it's not like a you know, once in a lifetime debt deal. It's like you could have bought 10 of these. Um, so has negative cash flow on it, has some positive tax benefits, so that the overall cash flow is positive. Uh, appreciation on it was 11,000 or so, and debt pay down was almost eight grand. And so on that particular property, you made about 20 something thousand dollars uh, just by buying this. So that's in year one when you do it. When you do year two, uh, the property made twenty three thousand in year two and twenty two thousand uh, for the second property you bought. So between the two of those um, and the one from the year before, you're at like sixty eight thousand towards your first hundred k, which is crazy to think about. That's just you doing uh, two nomad rentals, three properties total: one you're living in and two rentals. And then if you end up getting to year three. You have 25 from the first one in that year, 23 from the second one in that year, 23 from the third one in that year. And so you had a total of whatever this is, $70,000 plus what you had before. So you're at $141,000 by the end of year four, three years with US rentals. So you're way over that. Now you did have to contribute you know, down payments in order to get here. First one could have been zero, but you know, probably 3% down to 5% down for doing some of those but that's what's powerful about Nomad is it allows you to get these amazing kind of returns on, on the numbers. And I probably should do a whole class just on this concept of kind of getting to your first hundred K why Nomad is so fast for doing it. But one of the reasons why it's so fast is you're seeing 23% return, 25% return, 30% return on the amount that you invested, um, you know, on your equity, actually, in this case, because it's a return on equity quadrant uh, when you're doing that. And so I probably need to like dive deep and do an entire class on that, but This is the short version as to what I didn't know, you know, whenever it was 20 years ago when I first started. Oh, and here's the overall return on equity on all the properties. So your overall appreciation rate is 12.69, your overall cash flow is slightly positive, your overall tax benefits 1.85, and your overall debt paid out 8.83 for a total overall return of you know just over 20 something percent um, on a return on equity plus R12 um, quadrant when you're doing that. So That's what's powerful about Nomad is you're getting these super high returns on your money for for owning the properties. And that's going to help you get you there a lot faster. Okay. I think I'm making up some time. I'm halfway through, 36 slides. Focus. When I was running my marathon, Brian was uh, texting me uh, uh, videos of The Rock um in the gym saying focus <laughs> that's what he was doing when i was uh, when i was doing that on my phone focus
1: my yeah, phone exactly. is actually named focus
0: really should be named like lack of focus like distraction no that's not your phone so uh focus is gonna be relatively short but i think in some ways this is one of the bigger ones right I, I think this is the one that cost me a lot of time cost me a lot of energy and probably didn't help as much um You know, it's it's this idea of shiny object syndrome where, you know, you hear about a new course on, I don't know, reverse wholesaling or option auction strategy or um, you know, f- flipping houses remotely or virtual wholesaling or whatever it is that's the new attractive thing of the day, or day trading or buying domain names, or whatever it is. And you end up thinking oh, that that may be better than the strategy I'm doing. It would be a disservice for me to actually continue doing what I'm doing when this other thing could be two times better or even 10% better. You know, it's just this kind of like you think that you're missing out on something. And I think I had a lot of that missing out sort of psychology going on, especially when I was younger and I was looking for the optimal vehicle in order to get me where I was going to go. And I don't know if anyone else has had that sort of, I don't know, the thing where you feel like, I got to pursue everything because I don't know what I'm missing. And I could be finding something that's so much better than what, you know, this person's selling me as kind of like their course or their strategy. And so I, I had a lot of that going on. So I was always looking for something better. Yeah. Like a fear of missing out. I think that's a good way of putting it too. Um, and and the, what I, I came to realize later on is an expert with well-used old tools is better than a novice with the latest, most high-tech, best tools available because i think the expert has skills in using their tools and they can accomplish what they need to accomplish a lot of times with really great skill and have a really great finished product where someone who's brand new even though it's a slightly better vehicle slightly better tool set that they have a lot of times they just don't use it very well and they don't perform very well and so i don't know i would uh I would not, I would, I would think really hard about jumping ship all the time and trying something new. I would just focus and be patient and, and implement a strategy that you know, you know is in the top 25% or 20% 10%, whatever you find is your particular strategy. But I wouldn't jump around to gain a little bit of extra thing because the grass is always greener on the other side. You think that something else is going to be way much better and you try it and you're like, Oh, I didn't realize this was going to be part of this thing or I was going to have to deal with this nonsense and stuff like that. So I think that's another part of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you've ever seen me use like a regular saw versus a power saw, like my cut is much straighter with a regular sock. Is that power size out of control?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's probably true, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then here's here's the other part of focus. Um, there, here's a quote from the Bible. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law happy is he. And that's from Proverbs 29, 18, King James Version. and And I think about this a lot because I think about how It was hard for me and I think it's hard for a lot of people that unless somebody lays out the entire plan in detail and thinks through the entire project and like says, these are the steps, this is where you'll be, this is what you need to do. I think for most people, it's hard for them especially when they're brand new and they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they're missing. They don't know what they need to do until someone lays out that in detail it's really hard for you to have the vision of what you need to accomplish and how it gets you to your goal. And so uh, this, this occurs to me, like when we started teaching Nomad, I realized right away that I need to put out, even if you guys don't use the 10 year plan of buying 10 Nomad properties, you need to have at least seen a 10 year plan. So that, you know, Hey, someone has thought this whole thing through, and this is how you can get from zero to owning 10 rental properties and what those numbers look like. Now you may decide you only wanna do one or two or three or four or five or whatever it is, but at least someone has laid out yeah 10, Brian says, but someone has laid out the entire plan for you and given you a vision. This reminds me of like someone who is trying to build a house without creating a blueprint first or without creating some type of plans. Like, does this board go here? Well, I don't know. I mean, unless you have a plan, you don't know if a board does go there or not. Maybe it should go there. Maybe it shouldn't go there. But until you have a very detailed, thought through, organized plan where you know all the pieces fit together and how they fit together and what order they fit together, you can get lost in this thing where you lose focus. You just don't know what you should be doing. So I think it was really challenging for new investors to kind of develop or see that a detailed plan in the future. So that's why we ended up teaching the Nomad the way we do. Um, It's one of the reasons why I wrote the financial planner software is because there wasn't anything available that made it easy for us to develop these plans and change assumptions and do all that. And then it's one of the reasons why I wrote literally the blueprints so you could take your plan and I walk you through what happens at different stages, all these different significant events and stuff like that. So I'm trying to help you with your vision process because I think that was something that was lacking for me. Um, you know, I thought my vision was this $100 a month times 100 houses. And if I had run those numbers through the real estate financial planner software, I would have saw really early on that that was going to be problematic, especially if I did any type of stress testing whatsoever on those. So you want to add something that Brian, before I go on to the
1: next one? Uh, No, I spot on. Oh, you wanted me to add something because you were thirsty. Sorry. Well, I figured I would just ask (laughs) you.
0: Um, And on a related note, I think this focus and the grass is always greener. I think those are related. But when I was first starting off, you know, what I was told by all the people I talked to and all the books I read is cash is king. And I also heard cash flow is king. And so it was sort of like this. Somewhat contradictory advice, but I I took cash flow to be king more so than cash. Um, And maybe it was because I could see how I could generate a little bit of cash flow. I had a hard time seeing how I was going to generate large amounts of cash quickly to do stuff like this. So when I first started, it was still challenging in our local market, just like it is today. Maybe a little bit less challenging, but not much uh, to find properties that had positive cash flow. It wasn't easy to do, especially quality properties. So I was doing things just like we teach in like the uh, cash flow workshop class to improve cash flow. I was focusing on doing a lot of those things. The things that I was primarily doing was buying properties as you know, Burr, the buy, rehab, rent, uh, re- refinance things, and also creative financing because I didn't have 20 to 25% down payments. Maybe I could have scraped together one or two to do that. But after that, I was done. I mean, I would I would have been done buying. And so that was really hard for me and I wanted to acquire more than just one property that had $100 dollars a month cash flow um, I was trying to do this fast and I think that was actually one of the things that I probably um, made a mistake is I, I think I was trying to rush financial independence I was trying to get there really fast pushing it really really hard to do that and it, it's it's hard because I, I could see why some people might think it's conflicting advice when you know Brian and I tell you you know you got to work hard you got to push really hard you got to do it but then I just told you that I think I rushed financial independence, but I don't see them as conflicting because they're definitely both true. Um, I don't know if maybe Brian has some insight, but I I could see that they're they're different in my mind enough, and I'm not sure how to vocalize that.
1: Yeah, I, I think sure. <clears throat> I think the you know the second part of that is you know being smart and not overpressing to like ruin your chances. I think the first part is you have to put in the hard work right it's it's hard work versus don't press so hard and don't take risks that are unnecessary to get you there a little sooner realize that from all the other things we've talked about tonight like it's not a like get rich or get wealthy fast thing right yeah. once you understand that it's i'm going to get wealthy over time i'm going to use real estate as the means to the end for that and you know why you're doing what you're doing then i think you know, I've got to go do a lot of hard work now. Right. And, you know, as an, as an example to this, right. Someone asks with the huge seller's market houses going thousands above asking price. What is the best way to find a property at a fair price for nomad? Right. And James may have a completely different answer, but my answer is hard work. Frickin' every property that comes on the market, analyze it. If it looks decent, go see it. Like that's literally how you do it. It's just effort. It's like, You continue to go until you find what you want and you never give up. Like, that's all, that. Like that is literally the entire secret to my existence. Like, that is like the secret to all of my success is that when people tell me it's not going to work, you're not going to make it. I'm like, whatever, see when I get there. And then I just put the pedal down.
0: Yeah, I'll answer that question slightly differently. And I think in our market right now, in order to do that, I I would say you're not trying to buy 12 properties right now. Although the crazy thing is we could see appreciation and rents increasing for the next decade or more. And I and I I would have made a mistake doing this. But I think if you're just trying to acquire one property, You're buying something that has good long-term economics. I think that's what you're trying to focus on is buying something of quality that you would want to have in your portfolio 30 years from now. And it's possible that that property will have a dip in the short term. But I think over a very long period of time, if you pick a property of quality that is likely to have really good long-term economics, um, even if you're paying a small premium today, it's going to be cheap in the long run. And I think that's part of how I look at it now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Dan says, working hard does not equal rushing. Yeah. Uh, and Hunter says, that's actually a super interesting point. Thanks for pointing that out. In many ways, that's how I've interpreted hard work, right? And it, yeah. it's, it's not about how fast you can get there, right? Like if you were hiring an employee, would you rather have the person that rushed to get their job done? Or would you rather have the person that did their job really well, but worked, they both worked equally hard, but one rushed? Which one do you think has more mistakes and which one do you think is the long-term employee? That's yeah. the person you want to be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely some good points about that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of nuance and subtlety to some of this stuff. And I think that, yeah, especially mm-hmm. since I've identified some, if I can get beyond the emotional attachment I have to some of these points and the, the kind of like carnage associated with it for me, I think there's some real good lessons for us to continue to repeat in the future for N Craig. But I think, uh, yeah, I I just need to work on I think getting beyond that. Yeah. Um, unless there's something else, I'll get to continue on with this slide so and move and stuff. though. so when I was doing a lot of the Burr and creative strategy stuff, we could have found some deals that had good cash flow, that had decent cash flow. The challenge I had was they those were really rare. They were like super infrequent of finding ones that were decent cash flow on that. So the, the the challenge I was suffering with was I knew I needed a certain number of properties, you know, 100 properties for me if I was just going to do uh, $100 a month and I was you know and, and I was going to try to do 10 a month in, in passive income or 200 if it was me and my partner or I need to do $200 per month and have 100 of these. So for me I had to get to this big number and I was thinking to myself if our pace is one-tenth of what it was because I'm really selective in the properties that I'm buying with these things, it's going to take me forever to get to 100 properties or 200 properties. And that was one of the things I struggled with early on is this idea of acquisition pace and deal quality. And I, was, I, I think I, I landed on the side of pace, at least for a period of time, and I think that hurt me. Um, and I think if I had to do it over again, I'm not sure I would do it exactly the same way. I think I would have done more. Uh, having done it again a second time, I have done it with quality. I've done it with more quality type stuff than I have with than pace and just adding stuff to my portfolio because I could. Um, so it's something to kind of remember. Uh, and this is a slide. I won't go into a ton of detail. This was in the cash flow versus appreciation class, and it talks about how um, markets historically you know, some of them have had really good appreciation. Some of them have had really good rent appreciation. There are some that have had negative appreciation, but really good rent. And so it's like, this is a breakdown of how many existed for each breakdown of market. Um, And and go watch that class because I did a much better job of explaining that in that class. And this is probably a topic for more conversations. But what I did also want to point out is just because a market had great appreciation in the past and great rent appreciation in the past does not mean in any way that that is going to continue in the future. I think that you need to understand what is driving some of these things and try to look into the future as best you can, because it's really hard to do and try to say, do I think that this is going to be a property that over a very long period of time is going to have very positive economic kind of like perspective or a very ec- good economic uh, benefits of, of owning for a long time? Short term, it's really hard to predict. Long term, it's really hard to predict. But I think that's part of what you're trying to do is trying to evaluate you know, where this will be at, at some point long in the future. And on that note, do you want to say something, Brian?
1: Uh speaking of reserves, do you have a tool or chart evaluating the portfolio risk? Yes.
0: So in the um, in the real estate financial planner, there's there's probably two or three really good charts for risk evaluation. One of them is uh, debt to net worth. The other one is a new chart. I'm not sure if you've even gotten an email on it yet. It's uh, it's liquidity or account balances to debt. Um, I think that's the other chart. So it, it shows you a measure of like how liquid you are in your account balances compared to your debt load. And then another one is the number of months of reserves for your entire portfolio. It adds up all the expenses on all of your properties, including rentals and owner occupants. It adds up all the expenses you have programmed in there for your personal like living expenses. And it tells you how many months you have of reserves for all those things for the entire portfolio. And you can see your kind of like reserve balance uh over the course of you know 40 years or 60 years or whatever you're running there and i think that's another interesting metric and there's more coming okay uh past is not equal to future so you know we talked about this idea about appreciation to pass does not mean appreciation is going to be in the future cash flow to pass not mean it's going to be uh cash flow in the future just because a market has done well doesn't mean it will do well for you in the future. Just because a market has done poorly in the past doesn't mean it won't do well in the future. You need to try to understand the why behind it, which is really difficult to do, especially with unprecedented times. And we're not really sure like, what's gonna be the major factor in things um, and how those are all gonna play out, but you have to do the best you can. Um, and you may still be wrong. And I think that was a major thing that I had a problem with uh, early on is I had a fear of being wrong. And I think that still comes up today. I think that's part of the ego thing, right? Like being wrong and um, a feeling like I should have known. And I think that's definitely an issue I have going forward. But, you know, maybe you're better at that than I am. Um, I, I think the goal is to buy something with long term positive prospects try to put the odds in your favor. Doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes. Doesn't mean that you're not going to fail, but I think trying to put odds in your favor and making reasonable size bets, you know, don't bet the farm because it's 51% in your favor. Um, I think that's another key part of this. And that's one of the reasons why I like the nomad strategy is that you can actually keep big reserves and buy a property and get really good returns on the small amount. And if something starts to go against you a year later, you can actually buy in again and a better bet because now the odds are even more in your favor because you're buying at a bigger discount um, or buying a slightly different market or whatever you have to do in order to continue to buy and acquire things correctly. Um, And then market timing is a fool's errand. Trying to say the market's at its top, I'm not going to buy now, or the market's at its bottom, I'm going to buy as much as I can. I think that's really difficult to do. And and there's a lot of people that agree with me. I've got a whole bunch of little quotes. I'm gonna read you some of them just flying through. I'm not gonna comment on all of them, but I do think that it's important for you to realize that I'm not alone in this philosophy that timing the markets is incredibly difficult to do. It's really, really hard and it's inaccurate and there's no one that's really been super successful at it. And some of these guys are the richest men in the world. And so it's not just James's crazy little idea. Uh, This is people like Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and Charlie Munger and all these other guys about market timing. So Warren Buffett says, we continue to make more money when snoring than when active. And he's talking about not constantly buying and selling into the market. Uh, Bernard Baruch or whatever his name is, only liars manage to always be out during bad times and in during good times. So it goes to show that.
1: If you don't believe this, Like I I used to day trade. So if you don't believe this, try and go day trade and just try and get in when it's like bad and out when it's good and like, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just, no one can do it. Like you might do it consistently for six months, but can you do it consistently for 20 years? The answer is probably not.
0: Here's Peter Lynch far more money has been lost by investors preparing for corrections or trying to anticipate corrections than has been lost in corrections themselves. Mm -hmm. That's Peter Lynch. Uh, Benjamin Graham, who's uh, Warren Buffett's mentor says in the financial markets, hindsight is forever 2020, but foresight is legally blind. And thus for most investors, market timing is a practical and emotional impossibility. Another Peter Lynch things. I can't recall ever once having seen the name of a market timer on Forbes annual list of the richest people in the world. If it were truly possible to predict corrections, you'd think somebody would have made billions by doing it. Good point. Uh, Daniel Kahneman says the average investor's return is significantly lower than market indexes, uh, indices due primarily to market timing. Them trying to time the market.
1: And we've discussed uh, that before in class. I've shown stats on like, hey, people tend to get out too early and they don't hold and then they try to buy back in and it's already higher and they end up losing the entire game.
0: Totally agree. Uh, John Bogle, the, uh, the, the inventor of index funds, basically says the idea that a bell rings to signal when investors should get into or out of the stock market is simply not credible. After nearly 50 years in this business, I do not know of anybody who has done it successfully and consistently. I don't even know anybody who knows anybody who has done it successfully and consistently. Yet market timing appears to be increasingly embraced by mutual fund investors and the professional managers of fund portfolios alike. And I think that applies to the real estate market as well. Here's another Warren Buffett quote. We've long felt that the only value of stock forecasting is to make fortune tellers look good. Even now, Charlie and I continue to believe that short-term market forecasts are poison and should be kept locked up in a safe place, away from children and also from grown-ups who behave in the market like children.
1: And part Here's of that one. comes back to like the shiny object syndrome, right? Yes. You're like, oh, I'm doing this. Oh, that looks really good over there. I could make more money. And then you switch. And then guess what? You're getting in and out at the wrong times because you're just switching, 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 switching. Totally right? great. time it. And I think that was something early on. I think, part, really
0: early on, I didn't realize that there was like market timing. I was like, "I'm here now. I'm going to invest. I'm going to just do this." Because I don't think a lot of books were talking about market timing back then in the, in the in the real estate side. It took me a while to find the stock stuff. Okay, um, but I think that was one of the things. And then eventually, I was like, "Yeah, maybe you can time this. Maybe I should go and find a market that has better economics and try to do it there." And you know, there's a whole bunch of weird stuff. Um, Alan Abelson says, do you know what investing for the long run but listening to market news every day is like? It's like a man walking up a big hill with a yo-yo and keeping his eyes fixed on the yo-yo instead of the hill. Our market goes up and down, but it tends overall to go up in general. Uh, Henry Earl Singleton says, I don't believe all this nonsense about market timing, just buy good value, and when the market is ready, that value will be recognized. I think that's the concept we're looking for here is buying something of quality. Uh, Jonathan Clemens says, what to do when the market goes down? Read the opinions of the investment gurus who are quoted in the Wall Street Journal. And as you read, laugh. We all know that the pundits can't predict short-term market movements, yet, they are, yet there they are, desperately trying to sound intelligent when they really haven't got a clue. And and I'll, I'll comment on luck. And I didn't want to disagree with you up front, Brian, when you said that. You said something about luck and, and I, I had a slightly different interpretation of luck, but I wanted to just point out uh, like how I look at it on this slide. Uh, the role of luck and good fortune has been significant. I, I think, you know, if, if I could look back in time, if I was shifted a certain number of years, I think my strategy might have actually been successful. But I, I don't want to reflect on that and kind of, I don't know, like uh, if I hadn't been acquiring, up before a major market correction, I think it would have been slightly different. And so part of that is luck, right? Because you don't know that's coming. So I should have been more prepared and like looking back and saying, okay, what could I have done differently? Even if I had picked a bad time in the marketplace, I should have been more prepared personally, mentally, financially, definitely emotionally uh, for an in, in inevitable bad luck and bad fortune, you know, kind of like a stoicism sort of philosophy of, you know, this is going to happen, guys. I mean, market corrections are, they're going to happen. Portfolio values are going to go down. Rents are going to go down. You know, you're going to have unrealistically high expenses on a property or two or five or 10, you know, you're going to lose your job. Someone's going to get sick. I mean, these things are an almost inevitable. And if you don't have them happen to you, I do think that's partly luck. I think that it just, you you know you were one of the few that didn't have a major health event or a major loss of a job or a market correction during the time when you had that in your portfolio. And so I think going in here, thinking that that's not going to happen to you, that you're going to invest and the market's not going to correct. I think that's folly. I think that you should mentally, physically, financially, emotionally prepare for having that sort of correction and thinking it through as to what that looks like and what can you do about it. Um Being smart, in my opinion, is planning for these things, whether they happen or not. If you don't have them, you're lucky that they didn't happen for you, not that you were lucky that things went well for you. Um, I don't know, that's sort of how I look at it. And, And I'll point out like two more points that I don't know if Brian wants to comment on some of this. Even amazing businesses become distressed. That's largely what the value investing community is talking about. They talk about waiting for great businesses to have some type of temporary setback and buying in at those times. So even if we have this great real estate business, you can expect at some point that it's going to experience, at least at some level, some distress. Now, I think part of it is preparing yourself for that distress and realizing that this is not a knee jerk time for you to get out of the market. And I'm talking to myself, by the way. This is not a knee jerk time for you to get out of the market. And, you know, for you to not be prepared to kind of weather the storm. I think that that's the time for you in some ways to double down and buy in or at least kind of like prepare yourself for that period of time that you have to do that. So We are off this final thing I'll say about this and I'll let Brian kind of comment. We're often making decisions with incomplete information and subjective, very personal biases. So we believe certain things about what's going to happen, how it's going to happen and stuff like that. I think they're very subjective. I think they're very personal to us and they could be based on historical experience. They could be based on you not knowing. I mean, it could be based on just, you know, things you've heard, how you, how you were raised, all that other stuff, but we're never going to have a complete 100% view of everything that's going to happen, everything that has happened, everything that could have an impact. And so just, you have to get good at making decisions in partial darkness. I don't know, Brian, do you want to comment on some of that?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what your disagreement with my definition of luck was.
0: I think you just said something like, you know, you weren't lucky or something like that. And and I think that everybody has some aspect of luck, right? I, I Maybe it was when, I think I, I don't, we have to go rewind it if, if sure. we're going to do that, but it was something about how like, you know, you picked, you just happened to be investing during a time when everything has gone really, really well so far for you. And I think you're planning for a rainy day, but if, If you had started at a different time it might not look exactly the same maybe that's what it was i don't don't
1: think it would look exactly the same i think i was in a position where had i even started in 2007 which you know dan even makes a comment right uh in here the advantage of real estate is compared to stock is that you're dealing with a real tangible asset a big chunk of my portfolio was bought just before the 2007 burst it never affected us because rents were coming in and we weren't selling the properties Right. So they had enough, I assume, in reserves to cover whatever was happening. And you know, obviously, in depth about my situation, but my guess is that if I had bought a bunch of properties in 2007, I would still be okay. Right. But I think there are definitely events. And I think this is the hard part about life. Right. So uh, in poker, you could be holding kings and I could be holding aces and we could say, we literally turn our cards up. I would shove my card, my, my entire, you know, pot in my entire bankroll in every single time against you. Cause and I would 80- win.
0: I would win every single time.
1: <laughs> right. And I'm an, I'm an 81% favorite, roughly it's 80 point something, but I'm an 81% favorite. And what, what poker players and what investors and what I think people in real life don't realize is that odds are odds based on an infinite amount of time. And, So literally for my entire lifespan, it is possible that James just every single time his Kings beat my aces. And this happens at the poker table as well. But like, it's, it's, you literally see this. And so it is, this is what makes investing or poker playing or anything really difficult. Because if I go to the poker room for a year in a row, and every time I make the right decision, I get not rewarded and James wins all the money, and I'm like, I'm making the right decision, and it turns out, I could be the best poker player in the world, which I am not, but not by a long shot, right? But I could be, but I would never actually realize it, or have any physical evidence to show me this. And so I may be the best real estate investor in the world, and I invest at perhaps the wrong time, and then I get totally hosed by the market or some exterior factor, and then I just quit. And I never actually become to realize. And the problem is even in my lifetime, I may not realize it because it's based on an infinite amount of time. Right. And, And this is what becomes a real just mess with your mind in poker because you're like, Then you start going, am I making the right decisions? If I'm making the right decisions, why am I not winning? And then you start changing what were great decisions into subpar decisions. And now you're making subpar decisions and you continue to lose and you make even worse decisions. And it's just downward spiral. And this breaks more poker players and more investors than you care to imagine.
0: Yeah, so even in real estate, like looking back at what happened in the past, you don't know what was the right decision a lot of times. And you don't know what were the things that led to your demise. And so you can look back and think to yourself, okay, I I I thought this was correct. Should I repeat this in the future? Should I do this again? Or is that the wrong thing to be doing? And that's what caused me to fail last time. And it's really hard because you could have done the right thing and that still could have been the cause of your demise. And so that's what's really hard.
1: Yeah. And uh A. Lester Buck the third just posted about ergod er- ergudacity yeah. which I know is, you know, near and dear. And I still have that in my inbox to watch that <laughs> <video>. <laughs> yeah. from like a year ago. I'll get to it. But yeah. yeah, the actual path can wipe you out, even if you're making the good bet. That's right. this, is, this is where, you know, if you read any of, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's books, it's like, who are the great hockey players? It's the people that got lucky and were born in a certain freaking month. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. Part of that is luck. You know, why is Bill Gates where he is? It's because he was born at a certain period of time, had a certain opportunity, was at a certain location that had a computer in their school, and that was everything, right? I mean, I mean there's
0: like, other things that go into yes. it,
1: but without that,
0: it probably doesn't happen, even if right. they had everything else.
1: Right. And I mean, and so to back that up, <laughs> there's there's also a literal shit ton of hard work right yes. it's not just he happened to be in the right place at the right time because there were lots of people that were in that right. exact same age yep. exact same location and didn't do what he did that's what, what made him different he worked really freaking hard and i can attest to this from having seen him work yeah. so yeah uh nomads have the good fortune of being in america with our mortgage rules uh jason says suck out for the win <laughs> yes james definitely has a good uh Good luck in the poker realm. So would you recommend for someone just getting started, is it worth putting the first couple of properties in an LLC or just use an umbrella policy? So all the LLC and asset protection classes are posted. So go watch those. That is a like 15 hour answer.
0: Yeah, there's there's literally seven hours of stuff on there. Just two (laughs) classes from Brian and one class from me. Um, And the short answer is maybe. Uh, so deeper understanding of income and expenses, um, really understand the economics of income and expenses on your property. I think that was something I was missing. I I had much more of a macro view than a micro view of a lot of that, uh, what actually impacts and affects your income, what what impacts and affects your expenses on a property. Uh, can you do things to help rent go up? Can you keep expenses down? And this is largely that whole capital expenses class Brian taught, um, you know, like take that and expand it out to other areas besides capital expenses. And you sort of understand where I'm coming from with this is Brian does a ridiculously amazing job spending two hours going in and showing you why capital expenses can kill you if you're buying the wrong types of properties and how all that plays out. But realize that's just one field on the spreadsheet. And you really need to have that level of thinking for all the other areas of the spreadsheet as well. And thinking about. Things that you have control over, things you don't, and what can you do about it and how that all works out. Um, the capital expenses happens to be one of the big downsides of that initial, you know, buy, rehab, rent, uh, refi type of strategy and buying creatively because you have very little control over what properties you get. And sometimes you're taking on, you know, risks that are they're hidden beyond the spreadsheet. They're not just clear as day on the surface of the spreadsheet. So just realize that that was one of the challenges I had personally. And then I think finally, uh, sharpen the saw. I think this is the last one. Um, Constant improvements. So you're never done learning. I think that that was another lesson. And I, I feel really fortunate in that I think I had part of this early on because I've always been a big reader. I've always read a ton of books. But it's, it's more than just reading. It's, it's constantly studying and reading and implementing and and tweaking and trying to apply what you're doing and, and going out into other areas. Like if I had not expanded out into some of the stock market stuff, I wouldn't have been able to pull some of those back and kind of apply them to how I think about real estate. And I do think that a lot of those ideas have helped me become a better real estate investor. And if I hadn't done that, I I don't think I would have missed, I I would have missed out on some pretty good um, improvements and strategies. Um, so you should also take time to think and reflect and plan. I think that that's one thing that I probably didn't do as much of. I, uh, I would read a lot, but I wouldn't take time to actually process and implement. And I think Brian has been critical of that before. And I think it's fair. It's a fair criticism that, you know, I'll read 50 plus books a year, but he's like, well, did you implement the, you know, the last book you read? You know, did you take time to think about that and do it? And sometimes it's no, <laughs> uh, but sometimes it is. Yes. I mean, sometimes I, I do that. And if I take a break after a while, I try to go and, I don't know, put it all together and make it all work, but sometimes it's hard to synthesize after you've been away from a book for four months that you only read once. Um, So it's a fair criticism and one that I think I should do better on even in the future, but I I definitely didn't do nearly as much of that in the past. Um, And then related to this is test your assumptions. you have an assumption about how things work or why things are the way that they are. And I think you need to ask yourself, is that really true? Is that a true assumption or is it just been that way for 80% of the time and I haven't seen the other 20% yet? And what if the opposite were true or what if that was not true? And think about what that might look like and say, You know, that's really problematic for me. That would be devastating for my portfolio, devastating for my plan, and make appropriate plans for that, uh, to think things through like that. So I can still make mistakes. I do all the time. I'm still working on that. I hope you guys are as well. Um, And Charlie Munger says, in my whole life, I have known no wise people over a broad subject matter area who didn't read all the time. None. Zero. You'd be amazed at how much Warren reads and at how much I read. My children laugh at me. They think I'm a book with a couple of legs sticking out. So that's a quote from from, uh, Charlie Munger. Uh, The compulsion to push and achieve. I think this was a mistake of mine too. I was ultra competitive and driven and going for speed. I think that I was really pushing hard early on. Um, Not sure I completely understood or understand even now work-life balance um, and so that's just something to, to be aware of and, and something I could do better at. Um, definitely. I was way worse when I was younger. Now I think I've made some progress, but not nearly, I don't, th- I still don't think it's nearly good enough. In fact, it wasn't until like about this time last year when I actually started taking off a single day a week, I, one day. And it was now it's Sundays. So um, and
1: it's. And I think that's what people maybe don't understand. Right. Is that, It's whether it's real estate or Amazon or whatever it is that we're into. Like, it's not, oh yeah, I went to work from, you know, nine in the morning and I quit at four and like, like, I don't, I don't need to do that. Right. But if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it really well. And I very, I'm very selective about the things I choose to do, but when I select one, I'm going to kill it. And I think that's the, you know, like it's on my goals to like, start, you know, trying to take at least one day off a week as well. Yeah. Right. And it's because I, I enjoy what I do. Right. It's not like I feel forced to do it most of the time. There are definitely some of those days, but you know, you, you want to do it. So yeah. Jason's next book, how to half-ass your way to wealth. <laughs> yeah (laughs) it's called nomad (laughs) (laughs) nomad while playing hearthstone jason that's how that's what that's called
0: yeah 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 so uh, over the past few years um i've been taking more me time and even more so lately like i we were in the hot tub at the beginning of the year and i was i was telling uh, brian and royce i was like you know for me it's if it's not hell yes it's no and I'm being much more selective about who I decide to work with. I'm being much more selective about projects I take on. I'm definitely giving myself a lot more downtime and trying to work on uh, health, mental health, and um, you know, physical stuff. Despite you know, looks to the contrary from you know my COVID twenty that I put on since uh, COVID started. Um, but you know, it's, I think I think those are things that I did not know early on that I'm definitely making uh, some better improvements with. Um, and once you get your first like hundred K. I think it's easier to try to find balance once you've made some significant progress towards your goals because then that sort of like takes some of the, I don't know, the, the pressure off of you to do all of it yourself is that you've got some asset base that's growing and now you can afford And for lack of a better term, but I think it's a pretty good term uh, for you to kind of like let that do some of the lifting for you to get you where you need to be. Uh, But so it's it's hard to justify doing that when you're not at 100K and probably even more than that. Honestly, if if it was me, uh, you may have different goals on that. But I think you get to a point where that starts being enough. And now you're sort of like, okay, I I can definitely coast, not coast, but do less than going crazy seven days a week, 24 hours a day uh, doing that. Um, and I'm trying more, not be stupid now than to be smart. And I know that sounds like a weird thing, but I'm just trying to avoid making major mistakes. And if, if I had to do it over again, I bet you, I would, I would take that approach a little bit more rather than trying to be the smartest guy in the room or, you know, or associate with the smartest people in the room and try to make really smart decisions. I might try to just not make mistakes and, and avoid losing and, sort of put myself in a position to let myself win rather than forcing a win. I don't know if that's a, a good way to think about it. Um, so that's kind of where I, I am with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that analogy plays really well to EV and to poker. Like, if you sit down at a poker table and you're trying to, like, beat someone else, yeah, you're doomed to lose your money.
0: Yeah. And I think early on, I was more of a I'll beat you sort right. of personality. Like, I, I was – I mean, I cannot – I cannot overstate how competitive I was as a younger guy. Like, you know, imagine someone just ridiculously competitive. And I'll, I'll just ask ex- a lot
1: of exam, <laughs> Does take a lot of thinking for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, for you. I agree with it. And, and I think I see a lot of myself in, in the competitiveness with you. But like, this is how competitive I was. You know, my brother skipped a grade in like first grade. And because my brother was having some you know, challenges, just socially more fitting in than anything else in elementary school, by the time I was ready to, uh, to to go into first grade, they wanted to skip me a grade in elementary school too. My parents said no. So my brother held this over me for 10 years. Every time we'd get report cards and we'd compare them and say, you know, I got, you know, six A's and, you know, an A minus and you got, you know, whatever it was. He'd be like, yeah, but I skipped a grade. So this is like every day you know homework all sorts of stuff so i actually pushed really hard to skip grades in high school that's how competitive i was i pushed to try to skip grades in high school so that i could actually catch up with my brother that's like how ridiculously competitive i was so to kind of give you an idea of what that looked like and not that i'm encouraging that because i have totally gone the other direction where i'm just trying to like you're also oh, brian you own chess I'm not even going to play you because I don't even want to start the competition yeah, with playing chess. So I, I concede it's all you. you, you own the chess space. So that's sort of what it is. So, yeah. All right. So uh, the last slide is a uh, final thought. And this literally is the last slide.
1: Everyone uh, wants to know if you skipped a grade.
0: I did multiple. Yes. I started college at 15. So that's how I did it. But yes, like really crazy, ultra competitive to do that. All right. So final thoughts. One thing that came up while I was preparing for class, what things did I happen to get right in the beginning that I still feel are true today? Um, that's sort of like the opposite of what do I wish I knew when I started? It was sort of like, well, what things still are true today that were true back then? That, that could probably be a whole different class. I didn't write that down, but I thought that was um, an interesting kind of like sub side note that, that occurred to me while I was doing this. All right only 11 minutes over so far. Any, any final
1: questions? Um, so I got lots of comments. Oh, okay. Um, so I think, you know, on the reading thing, you know, I, it's very interesting, right? Because James acquires lots of, lots of knowledge and breadth of knowledge and reads a ton of books. And I read books almost out of necessity, <laughs> tried to make him spit his juice out. Um, and you know, but it, I will say that, you know, one easy way to avoid reading as much as James is, is have a best friend that reads as much as James does, and then sit in the hot tub with him and tell him your problems. And then he can tell you all the books you should read. And then you tell him, well, what's the point of that book? And he tells you the five minute synopsis and now I don't have to read shit. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you
0: you speak the truth because I think you're 100% correct. If you've got someone else who's reading 50 to 100 books a year yeah. and they have decent retention and they're relatively good at, oh, I recognize that particular issue you're having. Let me tell you about four different resources for that. And here's what they say about them. I don't know. Right. That's super helpful. I think I wish someone was like that for me. I mean, I wish right. I had someone oh that gosh. could read 50 to 100 I books. I would have like to me.
1: read like 500 books a year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I would first have to read every book you've ever read, re- read and yeah. then I would have to read 500 more a year in order to have a breadth wide enough to like be right. useful. Yeah. So that's crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I think really, I mean, I, I say that somewhat in jest, but I mean, James is an amazing resource, like not just for real estate stuff, but I mean, he's just an amazing best friend and amazing resource in general. Uh, but I think my my overall point in that is you need to surround yourself with people like that like this is part of not failing as hard when you fail is if you have people around you who are like okay you know i understand what you're going through let's talk about it and you can at least if nothing more than get it off your chest with, which james hates to do right but having the people around you that are going to support you through that process uh, I mean, huge setback in my life. I went through a divorce and James was there every day. So, and it makes a difference. So find the people that care about you. Um, somebody in their comment uh, says, uh, so this is from like a long time ago in the presentation, <laughs> but I highlighted it because I wanted to come back. Right? Uh, it says so much value in a great mentor. Uh, one that has a tried and true and approaches uh, and has made money doing them. And, I have this thing about mentors. (laughs) This is kind of a bet thief. Um, You know, when we used to teach live classes, you know, people would come up after and be like, Hey, Brian, will you be my mentor? And I'm like, who are you? And it's like, so I think there are great advantages to having an amazing mentor, but if you as their mentee are not delivering value back to them, then you need to reevaluate your relationship. So I think that is the, that is the one point I'm, I want to make on that is that you should be delivering value both ways. And sometimes that seems hard because you might be like, well, if James is going to be my mentor in real estate, how in the hell would I deliver any value to him? Well, there's a lot of ways you can deliver value, right? J- I mean, James is amazing at lots of things, but James needs advice on other stuff too. So, you know, James. Needs to share stuff, you know, every once in a while, you know, in a hot tub once a year (laughs) (laughs) or something. I don't know. But, you know, I think I like, I look back to when I met James and I like, I sought James out because I had basically heard that, you know, James is the person I needed to talk to. And, um, you know, he, he talks really fast and i was like great because i listen really fast so let's go and so i met him and we ended up sitting down and talking for a while but you know some of the first conversations we had like i went to him to find out what to do for real estate investing but he very quickly learned that he could turn to me to bounce his business ideas off of. right That's and true. so we would go on hikes and spend three hours talking about what his business strategy was and that wasn't an expected thing right honestly i was just looking for like okay, who's the best freaking resource for me right now because I want to do this, right? And it turns out, well, for me to actually get what I needed, I had to deliver value back. So uh, make sure that you're doing your mentors, you know, well in delivering value and it, and it could come in many different ways. So um, <clears throat> let's see. It's time to start reading comments. Um. Skipping grades, we covered that. Thank you for your honesty and for sharing. Really appreciate you. Uh, you guys could offer an ultra premium class, James and the hot tub <laughs> sharing thoughts. We are going to do a hot tub <laughs> class at some point. Oh man. Um uh Blink. I I'm not sure if that's a reference to Malcolm Gladwell's Blink uh, book, which is on my bookshelf right there. Uh um, that's a good book. Don't forget to rent Ferraris and bikini models for your YouTube shoots. I wonder who made that comment. I can only um, guess. Yeah. So Hunter <laughs> says, I've watched a lot of end classes, and I really feel like this is one of the best ones I've seen. Uh, investing in real estate or anything has been deeply psychological and almost spiritual even. So it's cool to hear you both touch on the something different than the spreadsheets, numbers, and ROIs. The emotional game is super important, which I couldn't agree more. Thank you both a ton for sharing some of your backstories uh good stuff fellas don't look back boston <laughs> uh brian has a great point about the mentees amazing class from nick uh thank you james thanks brian this is definitely one of the best classes i've seen from you which i said at the beginning probably is going to be that way uh i put a couple suggestions on the website from dan it still works
0: <laughs> thanks awesome.
1: dan uh thank you guys one of my favorite classes for sure uh, thanks both as always. Um, and so th- that's the end of the comments. Um, and, and like, I, I mean, I, I share, I, I, obviously I went through divorce and that was, uh, I think pretty rough, uh, cause you just don't know what the future holds. And, uh, I think that's a tough thing, but I think one of the other things that was really impactful. And I, I look at as just, I don't know if it's being greedy or being stupid or just, you look at things in one way, and it's almost like a culmination of a lot of the things that James talked about. Like I worked at Microsoft, we had stock options, and at, at one point, like I looked at it and I went, I, I mean, I even told my my close family this. I was like, "Alls I need is one more stock split, and it goes back up to one hundred and twenty, and like I've got two and a half million dollars, and things are like I can retire, right?" And it was like, and then it was like about at one hundred and twenty. And then it plummeted to 30, right? And you, you watch what you thought in two years would be two and a half million dollars turn into dust. Um, and I can tell you uh, that was horrific. And like, you're like, okay, well, how do I deal with this? And it's like one of the things I lost, I lost a lot of sleep, much like James did. Because for me, that was like, I had I had pushed really hard, right? And it was like, all of that reward was suddenly gone. And so how do you deal with that? I mean, it's very difficult to come to terms with. It's very like hard to understand like, okay, is thats is that 10 years or 20 years for me to get back to where I was? Will it ever yep. happen? Like you just, you have no idea and, you, and in some form you lose your self-confidence. Yep. Uh, you continue obviously to work, uh, but you're like, man, like, what an idiot! I should have, like, when it hit a million dollars, I should have just sold it. Like, what was I thinking? I was twenty-five. Like, what could I have done and invested a million dollars in at twenty-five? Like, WTF, right? So, uh, and Jason says, you know, hey, uh, is that why you don't invest in stocks now? And the answer is no. I think my my answer for that is, like, I have zero control over the stock market. And I've done long-term investing and very, very, very short-term investing, like down to the hours and had the SEC, like call me on the phone (laughs) and be like, "Uh, you owe us money. Like you can't do what you're doing. And I'm like, call me in three days, click. (laughs) So, you know, I think, you know, that part of it is I can, I can control a lot more of the real estate that I invest in, in a much more detailed way. And it's, for me, it became put all my eggs in one basket that I deeply understand and watch that basket very closely. Yeah. And it's not like I don't have other f- sources of income. Right. Uh, I mean, we obviously have an Amazon e-commerce business that does really well, but you know, it's, you know, I, over time I develop multiple sources of income. So and I think that's prudent for every single one of you. Every time you buy a house, it's another stream of income. So uh, you know, continue to do that. So uh carlos says thank you so much best class ever thanks a lot for sharing your experience jason says makes sense thank you uh and then great advice as always thank you so much so i don't know that i have anything else except get out there and buy some houses and work your ass off and get wealthy slowly
0: (laughs) yeah all right i I feel a lot better now i mean now that it's done although I, i still feel sensitive like it's out in the world but Hopefully it helps some people. So I appreciate you guys being on here and uh, allowing me to do that. So thank you.
1: I think it helps a lot of people. I think... This is like the better version of the Halloween class that we've taught where it's like, (laughs) what could possibly go wrong with your investments? Your house could burn down. People could cook meth in your property.
0: Yeah, I think that's the reason I don't like that class. It's like a bitch session for everybody's like complaining. And that's like the person who comes there for the first time, who's got like the littlest bit of hesitation over like, you know, toilets and tenants calling them. They hear these horror stories and it's like, well, I'm never invested in real estate. I, I mean, you saw me, I like... Failed. I came back. I mean, it's possible I could fail again. I don't think so, but you know, I think that's the better version of you know. It's not you know tenants calling you at three o'clock in the morning, you know, especially if you have property manager. So, yep I don't know. Yeah.
1: Okay, we got love for you guys. Thank you, James. Thank you, Brian. Excellent uh, class.
0: You guys are all very welcome. So I'm, I hope I hope I at least help somebody, and I you know I don't know. I feel a lot better now than <laughs> I did.
1: Stay hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's good it's david goggins it's go read the book uh thank you again james and brian I appreciate you guys sharing both your hardships and your successes you bet you're more than welcome so
0: all right awesome guys well i am gonna go uh myself an ice cream feel a little listen better about myself boston. so listen to boston yep
1: yeah that's what mitch says <laughs>
0: All right, guys, Uh, have a great evening. Thank you for being on. I do appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Thanks for your insight and uh, addition to the class. I really do appreciate that. And uh, I will see everybody next week. I will talk to you all soon. Have a great night, everybody. Later. Bye bye for now. Bye. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract
1: the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Phoenix is harder than ever. Book a call